0: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
1: Welcome back. As you know, I'm your arch and approachable, fashionable yet relatable, likable yet super snarky host, Sibling Jesuit. And we are here to spill the tea on all the wacky antics those crazy characters have been getting up to on your favorite show, Reality. Before we get started, I want to give you a standard disclaimer. We are not talking housewives or B list celebrities playing psychological power games while guzzling leaders of Rosé. This show isn't about reality TV, it's about reality. Like the physical world. Things as they actually exist, not the way we want to see them. What was it Philip K. Dick said? Oh yeah, that reality is the thing which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. So anyway, we know you want to see some sparks fly, so let's bring in our first guests, philosophers George Barclay and David Hume. Thanks for coming in. Now George, I hear you want to share something about the world with us.
2: I do indeed. You see, because we're just minds... We perceive only through our senses. We can only conclude that consciousness is the basis of all existence and that the universe is created and sustained by the ultimate consciousness, God.
1: But David, you've got some different ideas.
3: Indeed I do. This wee bishop is right about the unknowability of the world outside our minds. But that includes his precious God. It's just minds and ideas. No need for deity. You bitch. Philosophers, please.
1: Security. Thank you. Okay. But to calm ourselves down, can we hear from the science community? Welcome our next guests, Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr. Niels, I understand that you and Al have been hashing out some disagreements lately.
0: Yes, yes. Albert is a lovely man and a wonderful physicist. But he can't seem to accept the fact that at the smallest measurable levels, reality doesn't follow the elegant rules of his theory of relativity, but instead is simply a swarm of possibilities with nothing fixed or determined.
2: Damn it! God does not play dice with the universe.
0: Albert, we agreed
1: not to fight on TV. Ach,
2: God in Himmel.
1: Okay. Looks like we're not going to solve anything here. In fact, as it turns out, the more closely we look at reality, the more it appears to be an illusion. Or is it a conspiracy? All I know is it's probably going to make for a strange edition of The Paranoid Stream.
0: There is nothing wrong with your devices. Do not attempt to adjust your smartphone app. We are controlling the transmission. We may not control the vertical. We may not control the horizontal. But damn it, we control the volume. We control the timbre. The pitch. And the speed. You are traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. And, well, no, not really the other two, just sound. Give us a fucking break. It's a podcast. Anyway, there's a signpost up ahead. What? It's an audio signpost. Don't worry about it. Jesus. Anyway, your next stop is a place we call the Reality Zone.
4: Let's all acknowledge that that was a weird cold open. Like, even for this show. Also, did he confuse the Outer Limits opening with the Twilight Zone opening? Is this a conspiracy to drive away listeners? Would you mind actually telling all of us what the fuck you're doing this episode?
0: Hey, cool your jets. I'm about to get to it. But first, we got to do a little housekeeping and welcome the newbie straniacs. New folks, thanks for weathering that opening bit. And welcome to what we hope will become a new podcast listening habit. Since you went to the trouble to find this show among the seemingly infinite number of alternative listening fare, we're assuming that you're one of those people who's always seeing weird stories from family and friends in your Facebook feed and your email inbox. We all know and love some people whose grasp on reality is a little less robust than might be ideal. But if you've ever found yourself wondering out loud,
4: What the fuck is QAnon and why is my Nana so fired up about it?
0: You've come to the right place. Every four fortnights,
4: just say two months like normal people,
0: we provide you with some sane reality-based explanations for one of those super weird ideas. Over time, we expect to cover the whole spectrum of conspiracy nonsense, both ancient and contemporary. And we do this to help you understand why your cruise director, your food taster, and especially that one professional mourner who just has to make every funeral all about her.
4: Yes, we're talking about you, Karen. You know, the keyword is professional. I can dangle 50 bucks out of my car's window and line up 100 actors servers on a smoke break behind a shishi bistro on Deer Drive to show up and quote unquote cry. I paid for a professional mourner and I just expected better. That's all. Don't worry, the check will clear, but rest assured, this is definitely going to bring down your Yelp score.
0: Anyway, we explain why all of those people believe such tawdry, unrealistic conspiracy theories, in spite of all evidence to the contrary. I'm your host, Fearful Jesuit, and I have a confession. I once dared Johnny Cash to shoot a man in Reno just to watch him, watch him die. And that's only the first shocking revelation in what should prove to be a real thrill ride of an episode. However, and I have to ask you to stay with me here, this will mark the first time the paranoid strain covers a topic that isn't. Technically, a conspiracy theory.
4: (gasps) At least, not a conspiracy per se.
0: But don't worry, there's still plenty of conspiracy-related fun to be had, and a bunch of dumb fuck ideas to giggle at. We're just expanding the show's purview a bit, and we're hoping you'll come along for the ride. So pull up a seat by this campfire, and we'll try to explain what we're aiming to do over the next couple of shows. So, young listener... As we sit here under the dome of the night sky, bellies full, everything right with the world, we ask you, have you ever wondered how you know that any of this, me, you, the stars, the fire, the food you're even now digesting, in fact the entire scope of what we normally consider to be reality, how do you know it's actually real?
4: Wait, what?
0: You know, I mean, sometimes you see things that aren't there... When you dream, or when you've had a fever, or when you're super duper baked, my brohem, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. When they pass that duchy from the left hand side, you totally get it.
4: The fuck are you talking about? Are you okay? Yo, Dana, don't harsh my mel.
0: I'm just saying. Let's say you see a blue sky. Like, how do you even know the blue you see is the same blue that I'm seeing, right? Because I can't get in your head and like you can't get in mine. So if our brains are wired differently, your blue might be like my green, right? And we'd never know. So we'd both be calling it blue, but we'd mean different colors, right?
4: This is embarrassing. Do you need me to call someone? Uh, I'm cool.
0: Apologies, but it's surprisingly hard to talk about this without sounding like the white kid in your freshman dorm who was super-duper into Rastafarianism. Let's try perhaps a more respectable angle. It occurred to us that, while we absolutely stand behind the cause of supporting and defending our shared reality, and the idea that verifiable evidence should be deployed at all times against conspiracy theories and other stupid ideas, both foreign and domestic— we've thus far kind of avoided addressing head-on some of the most genuinely perplexing questions humans have ever banged their heads against. That is, while we've told you for years now why a bunch of stupid ideas don't comport with reality, we've never walked you, our beloved audience, through all the difficult and thus far unsolved problems related to pinning down what we mean by reality in the first place. And for that matter, how do we deal with consciousness, the self that interacts with and interprets that reality? It's at this point that we have to acknowledge that we're not experts in any of the stuff we're going to be talking about here. So what else is new? In fact, we're far from it. But we have obsessively studied the ways brilliant people are tackling these concepts for just as long as we've obsessively studied the way that the credulous have developed and fallen for ridiculous conspiracy theories.
4: That is, as long as he can remember.
0: And for basically the same reasons. We want to know why people come up with weird ideas. And in establishing those ideas as weird, it's incumbent on all of us who belong to, as one cynical asshole derisively put it, the reality-based community, to understand what we can, and can't, truly say with confidence about that reality and our role as participants and observers. See, in a sense, every conspiracy theory is an error in the believer's reality-processing mechanism. Flat earthers privilege their immediate limited personal experience of a seemingly flat horizon, over the huge amount of less-immediate, yet far more convincing data and observations that replicable and rigorous experiments have provided us. So the world is obviously flat. You can see that with your own eyes. But less obviously, and for those who understand a deeper reality, far more convincingly, it is definitively round.
4: Well, an oblate spheroid, but fair enough. By the way, I may be off base, but I... I think he may finally be making sense. Wait, did I I get a contact high?
0: So we can and have debunked and ridiculed flat-earth beliefs, which is super-duper easy.
4: See episode 11.
0: That done, we close the book, acknowledge that some truly determined people can't
4: And we definitely stole this phrase from somewhere.
0: be reasoned out of a position they didn't reason themselves into in the first place, and move on to the next topic. Which is great. In fact, it's our bread and butter. But you don't have to be a flat earther, a sovereign citizen, a 9-11 truther, or a QAnon nut to understand that there's something truly weird about those nebulous concepts we call reality, self, and consciousness, even in their most stable and widely shared versions. In fact, cutting-edge cosmological research, philosophical exploration, and thought experiments inevitably reveal the world to be much less stable, consistent, and comprehensible than we might otherwise assume. So we're going to do our best to give you a quick,
4: uh, given the show's loquacious track record, let's say quick-ish,
0: tour through the most important ideas and discoveries in these areas over the past couple thousand years, because honestly, we can't think of a single topic that's more endlessly fascinating. It means we get to talk about some of the most significant thinkers the human race has ever produced. And then we'll see how some other yahoos have misapplied these heady investigations into the bedrock of experience to suggest truly insipid horseshit, like the Mandela Effect. Next, we'll dive into a set of ideas that frame the very functioning of the universe as a kind of conspiracy against conscious agents like us. No sinister cabal of mysterious puppet masters required. Finally, we'll profile a crazy who asks us to re-examine all of history from a completely unsupported, mystical, woo-woo perspective. Since this is a show about conspiracy theories, we invite you to think of this one as the episode about how various thinkers have approached the idea that the world itself, that all of reality, is in fact an illusion or conspiracy of some kind. A show about the strong possibility that we are doomed never to truly understand reality as it is, but also a show where we explain humankind's best ongoing efforts to get closer to that potentially unreachable goal. Oh, and did we mention that this is the first of a two-parter? In a couple months' time, we plan to focus on the career of perhaps the most visionary and also the most utterly whacked-out modern avatar of reality questioning, a writer who devoted his short, difficult, drug-addled life to expanding the shit out of his readers' minds by exploring the questions of reality, consciousness, and the human condition as mediated by technology. And while we're at it, we'll dive deep into the question of consciousness, as well as obscure, heretical Christian sects.
4: I know but he tells me it's all going to make sense. Guess we'll find out soon.
0: We already mentioned we're far from experts here, but we need to make an additional admission for the sake of full disclosure. Just as with our JFK show, where we tearfully acknowledged we didn't read the Warren Report per se, but rather depended on secondary sources and critiques, we here similarly have to acknowledge that we're far less well-read in the primary literature of both philosophy and science than the following might lead you to believe. For those of you who are fans of Whit Stillman's precocious early film oeuvre, we find ourselves in a very similar position to Tom Townsend in Metropolitan, who, after expounding at length on important authors, admits he has never actually read them.
5: You found Fanny Price unlikable?
0: She sounds pretty unbearable, but I haven't read the book.
5: What?
6: You don't have to have read a book to have an opinion on it. I haven't read the Bible, either.
4: What Jane Austen novels have you read?
6: None. I don't read novels. I prefer good literary criticism. That way you get both the novelist's idea as well as the critic's thinking. With fiction, I can never forget that none of it ever really happened, that it's all just made up by the author.
0: We're just trying to keep our dilettante cards clearly displayed on the table so no one accuses us of dealing from the bottom of the deck. Anyway, holy shit do we have a lot to cover. Let's get to it, and we'll start with a quick overview of how we got here, evolutionarily speaking. According to folks who know about this kind of thing, recognizably modern humans have been loping around this rock for around 200,000 years. But of course, the evolutionary pressures and processes that led to our species started, as near as anyone can tell, about 4 billion years before that. Now, before we continue, we should take a moment to acknowledge the fact that this sort of talk is very offensive for some people. So, dear listener... If you don't accept evolution or the scientifically determined age of the Earth, solar system, galaxy, universe, etc., we want you to know. We hear you.
4: And you're just flat fucking wrong.
0: Yep. Oh, and by the way, if you don't accept well-founded science backed by all available evidence and instead presume that all scientists in the relevant disciplines are covering up the genesis-confirming truth, then congratulations, you're a conspiracy theorist. See you later. Don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out.
4: By the by, we'll definitely be doing a creationism episode someday, but we can't resist the quick bashing whenever the opportunity arises.
0: Anywho, the blind yet rigorously consistent processes behind the evolution of life have shaped every ancestor our species has ever had. Self-replicating molecules build gradually more complex systems and forms that allow better adaptation to the current environment, leading eventually from free-floating nucleic acids to individual cells and primitive bacteria. Periodic mutations in the genetic code, which usually result in catastrophe and death to the affected individuals, occasionally instead offer a new advantage and become dominant within a population through reproductive success, which also combines and recombines those various changes with other variations, sometimes producing still other novel, helpful features. As populations separate into geographically remote groups, they evolve based on different mutations and environmental pressures. Eventually, they can no longer interbreed with similar populations, and a new species is established. Over vast timescales, previously advantageous adaptations become disadvantages, while others are adapted to new uses. Eventually, after a number of world-shattering catastrophes, a group of furry, warm-blooded, milk-producing animals we call mammals get their time in the sun, and a group of these, who have evolved large brain-to-body ratios and opposable thumbs that help with hunting, evading danger, and manipulating tools— inadvertently also develop unprecedentedly complex mental functions that give them what amounts to cognitive superpowers. For example, they can mentally stimulate alternative scenarios, or even fantastic worlds that have never existed. They can, in a limited sense, kinda sorta predict the future. They are extremely cooperative,
4: if admittedly also quite warlike.
0: And that cooperative tendency, combined with their other advantages, gradually allows them to develop systems for passing along hard-won experience, first through speech, and then through writing. Working together, they craft astonishing architectural, artistic, and technological marvels. They build magnificent cities. They destroy life-threatening diseases. They send members of their species to the goddamned moon. But here's the thing. All of these amazing achievements their big brains have made possible, they weren't part of some master plan. They're just effects that, as near as anyone can tell, simply and spontaneously arise once brains reach a certain level of complexity.
4: And don't get us wrong, we are pleased as punched about that turn of events. Seems like podcasting without higher mental functions would be a real pain in the ass. Which is not to say that some podcasts we've heard aren't making a valiant attempt.
0: Oh, snap, Miss Sassy! The point is, evolution didn't have human consciousness, or in fact any other end goal in mind. There wasn't some mandate to produce life that could A. Eventually wonder how it got here in the first place, and then B. Set about rigorously trying to figure out the answer to that question. Evolution wasn't, and isn't, strictly speaking, striving toward anything. It's just a description of what happens when self-replicating life meets changing environmental pressures. And that's what our big, beautiful, delicious, zombie lust object brains are. a response to the environmental stimuli that existed a few hundred thousand years ago on the African savanna. Bigger brains mean better bows, better aim, and better predictive mental models, which in turn means more arrows embedded in more gazelles at a greater, safer distance from the circling lions and hyenas, and therefore more protein and fat in support of the development of new, even bigger brains in subsequent generations. Yes, as it turns out, given enough time, those big brains also mean more Sistine chapels, space shuttles, and playstations and certainly many more probing questions about how big brains work in the first place. But all of that is a side effect. If we've said it once, we've said it a thousand times. We're lucky our evolved monkey senses can make heads or tails of the more complex and subtle aspects of reality in the first place. It's no wonder, then, that as we learn more about the world around us, we're constantly bumping up against new knowledge or situations that don't make any intuitive sense to those aforementioned supercharged monkey ganglia. A reflection of the fact that we find ourselves accidentally conscious in a world that doesn't, that literally can't, give a fuck whether anything makes sense to a bunch of hairless apes. Consider the fact that, for the sake of our own sanity, we're essentially wired to ignore the vast majority of the stimuli we receive from our surroundings. Take the extreme mundanity of your commute. I will almost guarantee that, assuming you've been in the same job for a while, you can't remember a single notable thing that transpired over the past month as you journeyed back and forth to work. Or for some of you, even what happened after you got to work.
4: Well, somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Is it Friday yet? It's five o'clock somewhere. Someone, please kill me. Are you working hard or hardly working? Seriously. I'm an empty shell. For God's sake, end this nightmare. Same shit, different day, am I right?
0: But on the other hand, imagine if a person from one of the few hunter-gatherer tribes remaining on Earth were suddenly thrust into the same humdrum everyday commute experience. Strapped behind the wheel of a metal dragon, confronted on all sides by rumbling, monstrous contraptions that look like nothing he's ever seen, whizzing by at unimaginable speeds, flashing lights, inexplicable noises. It would be complete sensory overload. The difference is your consciousness is constantly filtering out the stimuli that experience tells you are extraneous to your simple, straightforward purpose of getting to work. Okay, it's pretty obvious that we focus on a small number of important signals from our environment and filter out everything else. But that's the thing. Our brains are so good at dealing with the world as we experience it on everyday terms, reducing down the whole of reality to the parts that help us feed, fuck, or flee, that we almost never experience what unfiltered reality is like.
4: There are exceptions, of course.
0: Specifically, some studies have indicated that hallucinogens like psilocybin and LSD, the effects of which are typically thought of as expanding the mind, brah, actually work by switching off parts of the brain. Quoting an article from Scientific American,
4: In effect, psilocybin appears to inhibit brain regions that are responsible for constraining consciousness within the narrow boundaries of the normal waking state.
0: So for our purposes, these preliminary results seem to indicate that the overwhelming auditory, visual, and even tactile hallucinations that users experience are due to their brain's normal filtering functions being suppressed. In other words, rather than throwing the brain into overdrive, it's simply removing the mental barriers that make it possible to move through the world without constant distraction. So evolutionarily, we're jerry-rigging mental capabilities that develop to ensure we would survive, bootstrapping them into jobs they couldn't possibly have been designed for.
4: Astrophysics, computer science, Zamboni driving.
0: All the while blocking out most of what we perceive in order to keep ourselves sane. And we can do this because our brains are great at carefully focusing on the parts of reality that bear closely on the task we're trying to accomplish. But the flip side of that is we're only ever absorbing a tiny fraction of the information that our senses are taking in at any given time. So we have a very narrow and warped view of the world, but we still all
4: apparently
0: experience the same reality. And based on that experience, humans have spent thousands of years doing their best to figure out what exactly it all means. We call the activity these humans are engaged in philosophy, and it's the next step in our reality show tour. As might be expected for a show dealing with conspiracy theories, and therefore with the ways that humans comprehend and verify reality, we have oftentimes touched on philosophical topics. But for this episode's focus, we're going to have to delve more deeply into the origins of our species' inquiry into our very human condition. And at least for the tradition of Western philosophy, that means talking about Socrates and Plato. If and you haven't already heard, Socrates is widely considered one of the most important thinkers in all of history, and the father of Greek philosophy.
4: A term that means the love of wisdom.
0: Born in Athens around 470 BC, he spent his time wandering around his city-state, asking impertinent questions and being kind of a dick to anyone he thought was a little too confident about anything.
4: Literally anything. Anything at all.
0: Famously, he was proclaimed by the Oracle at Delphi,
4: who, as you may recall from a QAnon episode, Quaker was a major religious figure of the time who was thought to channel prophecies from the gods. More accurately, one of a group of women who exposed themselves to toxic and hallucinogenic vapors emanating from a natural cavern, and then declaimed inscrutable and usually unverifiable pronouncements about the future of various important Greeks of the period.
0: So the oracle declared Socrates to be the wisest of men. Socrates was confused at this pronouncement, as he was vocal about the fact that the only thing he knew was that he knew nothing. But then, as the story goes, after talking with other reputedly wise figures of his period, he came to understand that in fact the prophecy was true, if only insofar as Socrates was wise enough to know that he knew nothing, whereas those he had spoken to had the unjustified belief that they knew plenty. Socrates was an amazing dude. He was eventually tried and convicted of corrupting the morals of the youth of Athens because he told them to question received wisdom from their elders, including the worship of the gods.
4: And instead of throwing himself on the mercy of the court, he essentially used his speech in his own defense to accuse everyone who held his fate in their hands of intellectual and moral cowardice and tell them that instead of executing him, they should support him at public expense for the rest of his life.
0: When convicted and sentenced to death, instead of just hopping a boat to a friendlier city-state, he drank poison as prescribed, reasoning that no one knew whether death was actually bad or good, so it was unreasonable for him to go to any real lengths to avoid it. The absurdity and tragedy of all this is nicely encapsulated by Nigel Warburton in his A Little History of Philosophy.
4: About 2,400 years ago, a man was put to death in Athens for asking too many questions.
0: Anyway, we like to consider Socrates the secular patron saint of the strain. We aspire to ask impertinent questions, though hopefully with fewer hemlock-related consequences. Among his other quirks, Socrates wasn't in favor of writing down his ideas.
4: He thought that writing led to laziness in thinking, argument, and memory.
0: But thankfully, his student Plato had no such compunctions, and wrote extensively after his master's death, recording Socrates' key insights in a style that blended the great man's ideas with Plato's own through imagined dialogues in which his deceased mentor engaged in question-and-answer arguments with other Athenian luminaries on various important topics.
4: Spoiler, Socrates always wins these arguments, which, to be fair, probably was a reflection of how things actually went down. Socrates was crazy smart.
0: One of the most important ideas for our understanding of reality comes from a dialogue called The Republic, desultorily skimmed for essay tests by political science students since time immemorial. One section lays out unquestionably the most famous thought experiment in all of Western philosophy, the allegory of the cave. If you already know it, feel free to skip a minute or two while we explain to the rest of the class. Plato, through the mouth of Socrates, sets the scene.
4: Imagine this. People live under the earth in a cave-like dwelling. People have been in this dwelling since childhood, shackled by the legs and neck. Thus they stay in one place, so there is only one thing for them to look at. ...whatever they encounter in front of their faces. But because they're shackled, they are unable to turn their heads around. A fire is behind them, and behind their backs, there runs a walkway at a certain height. Imagine that a low wall has been built, the length of the walkway... ...like a low curtain that the puppeteers have put up, over which they show their puppets... ...the images carried before the fire. So now, imagine that, all along this low wall... ...people are carrying all sorts of things that reach higher up than the wall statues, and other carvings of stone or wood, and many other artifacts that people have made. As you would expect, people are talking to each other as they walk along, and some are silent.
0: Pretty evocative, right? And obviously, this is Plato's analogy for how we live our lives. Like the inhabitants of this cave, we not only don't see the reality that presumably exists outside of the cave, we don't even see the actual puppets or representations of those objects we see the shadows of the puppets that represent that reality. And what we hear is the echo of people doing their impressions of the real sounds that these things would make. And worse, we're shackled, only able to see this pantomime. And so we take it as our reality. Now, of course, there's more to this allegory. Eventually, someone is released, forced to turn around, first sees the bizarre puppet show, and then eventually he emerges into the bright light of the sun and the non-puppet, non-shadow objects of the real world. He resists, but eventually sees everything in all of its three-dimensional glory. But when he returns to tell his compatriots all about what he's seen, that things are so different from what they experienced it's almost impossible to describe, they find him rambling and incoherent, and resolve to punish anyone who tries to venture out of the cave and disseminate such nonsense in the future.
4: Clearly, this is Plato's shot at the powers that be over their judicial murder of his mentor and hero, Socrates.
0: The Steve McQueen motorcycling over the prison wall in this analogy is the philosopher, and what he experiences outside the cave is a deeper, perfect reality that is inaccessible to all but those who study philosophy, and to them only occasionally.
4: We're not going into it, but suffice it to say that Plato believed that there existed an ideal version of everything—subway tokens, cats, Toyota Corollas, Jamila Jamil—of which the versions in this world are merely copies of coffees, the shadows on the cave wall.
0: Actually, we're pretty sure this world's Jamila Jamil is the Platonic ideal version. But we digress. What emerges from this is an early example of a philosopher who posited that reality, as it's commonly experienced, is not what it seems. And this argument would rage on throughout hundreds of years of different thinkers and philosophical schools, with a long detour in which, for most folks in the West, reality was whatever the Pope said it was, and if you happen to disagree,
7: eh.
8: the Spanish Inquisition!
0: All of which is super interesting, but we're going to skip forward a couple thousand years to a spare, lonely apartment where a 17th century Frenchman decided he was going to rebuild philosophy from scratch. That man was Rene Descartes who is generally considered the father of modern philosophy for the sheer unadulterated brashness of the project he assigned himself, as well as his surprising success in using it to form the bedrock of a new way of looking at the self and its relationship with reality. Descartes decided he had to strip away everything he knew that was received wisdom, that is, anything he'd ever experienced as truth through his senses.
4: That seems a bit extreme. What's the point?
0: Well, you see, young René was trying to address the key problem of perception, which, quoting the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, can be stated thus.
4: The problem of perception is that if illusions and hallucinations are possible, then perception, as we ordinarily understand it, is impossible.
0: In other words, he realized that, technically speaking, he could never be absolutely certain of sensory info from his eyes, ears, nose, touch, etc., Because obviously, those senses can be deceived, as you can learn from Chris Angel, Mind Freak.
4: Well, we presume.
0: In fact, Descartes came up with a scenario where some entity, which he referred to as an evil daemon, produced a completely convincing but utterly unreal world specifically to keep Rennie D. in the dark about the true nature of reality.
4: To be clear, he didn't believe this had really happened. He was just hypothesizing an extreme version of his argument to ensure that he didn't depend on anything that could turn out to be a mistaken impression he had received through his senses.
0: Now, again, this means he had to figure out what he could possibly know after eliminating any information that had ever come in through any of his senses. And remember, that, of course, included everything he'd ever been taught or had ever read.
4: So. Don't keep us in the dark. Based on these incredibly strict criteria, was there anything he could know?
0: Just one thing. (laughs) That he was still thinking. This is a much bigger deal than it sounds at first blush. Descartes' declaration is expressed in Latin as cogito ergo sum, or in English as perhaps the most overused philosophical phrase in the language, I think, therefore I am.
4: See the Flat Earth episode for more on how this declaration intersects with the problem of hard solipsism. Also, we heard other philosophers express the core of this insight as something thinks, because many modern thinkers agree that Descartes' solution doesn't actually solve the problem of demonstrating a self per se. But, you know, what do we know?
0: As many times as you may have heard this tossed off in a semi-jokey way, it had nothing short of a revolutionary effect on how people looked at our philosophical assumptions about reality and what we could truly be certain of. The rest of Descartes' project has not held up nearly as well. He used his key insight to create a model in which the mind is an immaterial, spiritual thing that is connected in some ineffable manner to the physical body. This model is called Cartesian dualism, after its creator. And while it was, for a time, hugely influential, it's accepted by very few modern philosophers or neuroscientists, and even then usually for non-scientific, i.e. religious, reasons.
4: We'll have much more on this next episode.
0: This forms the launching point for all of the other ruminations that we'll concern ourselves with in this section. Our next stop is with a thinker named George Barclay. That last name is spelled Berkeley, like the hoity-toity Bay Area California town whose world-class university we hope and pray that Awkward Jesuit will eventually attend. But the philosopher's name is actually pronounced Barclay, like the round mound of rebound.
4: Holy shit, he made a sports reference. Anyone know if it was uh, reasonably accurate?
0: Or maybe it's not pronounced that way. Honestly, sources differ, and we're tired of trying to figure this out, but we're going with the basketball player pronunciation. Anyway, philosopher-slash-non-Miami-Heat Barkley staked out a fascinating approach to the issues left open by Descartes. Namely, if the only thing that we can genuinely know is our own status as thinking beings, if we're stuck in our own heads, unable to prove the existence of the outside world,
4: There's that problem of hard solipsism again.
0: Then how do we deal with the fact that there appears to be an entire universe of experiences that we share? Well, Barclay had an answer, which was, since we're essentially brains stuck in our own heads, dependent on fallible senses for our interactions with anything outside of our minds, the only thing we're justified in saying about that world is that minds exist, and those minds have ideas.
4: And?
0: And those minds basically create the universe as we experience it.
4: Wait, human minds create the universe? Well, not
0: human minds. We should have mentioned that Mr. Barclay is better known as Bishop Barclay of the Church of Ireland. So his solution to the problem of perception is that God's mind perpetually creates and sustains the universe. No further explanations needed. Or as the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy puts it, his was a philosophy of
4: immaterialism, according to which all that exists are ideas and the minds, less than divine or divine, that have them. He takes the mind to be a perceiving, active thing, which itself is not any one of my ideas, but a thing entirely distinct from them, wherein they exist, or which is the same thing, whereby they are perceived. From these stipulations, he derives his most fundamental and famous claim that the existence of an idea consists in being perceived by the perceiving active mind.
0: And if that isn't clear enough, the article's author continues,
4: if the only objects that exist for a mind, whether it is my own mind or the mind of another human being or the divine mind, or ideas, because there's nothing else that can exist for the mind, then the very concept of something that exists but is not for the mind or is unperceived is a contradiction in terms. I am going to go ahead and presume that some other philosophers had issues with this concept.
0: You'd be right. Our favorite story along these lines, though definitely not the strongest response, was by the amazing Samuel Johnson, compiler of the first English dictionary and a guy so interesting that the biography his buddy Bosworth wrote about his life is a literary classic. So rather than try and rephrase it, we're just going to quote said bio.
4: After we came out of the church, we stood talking for some time together of Bishop Berkeley's ingenious sophistry to prove the non-existent of matter and that everything in the universe is merely ideal.
0: Remember, Barclay thought only minds and ideas existed. Sorry, please continue.
4: I observed that though we are satisfied his doctrine is not true, it is impossible to refute it.
0: For this next bit, we'd like you to imagine that Johnson is now starring in one of those thug life meme videos that were popular on YouTube a few years ago.
4: Striking his foot with a mighty force against a large stone till he rebounded from it, he declared, I refute it thus.
0: You're going to have to imagine the portrait of Johnson with sunglasses and a blunt, but you get the idea. The real shellacking of Barclay's argument started with the skeptical Scottish legend David Hume. He's still hugely influential, far more so than Barclay. But he in many ways agreed with Barclay's concepts, at least insofar as both philosophers are seen as idealists. That is, those who believe that, again, per the Stanford Encyclopedia.
4: The objects and properties that we perceive are in fact mind-dependent.
0: But Hume was clearly not willing to follow Berkeley on this universe-exists-in-the-mind-of-God stuff. Hume was a legendary skeptic. This was the man who insisted very influentially that while we live our lives based on the idea of causation and repetition, that is, we're justified in believing that when Johnson kicks that rock, his foot will bounce off as a result, really all we can know is that we've seen similar actions to the kick, followed by similar actions to the foot rebounding, throughout our lives. And others have seen them throughout human history, assuming we accept the memories of contemporaries and ancestors. But really, given those same limitations of our senses we were previously talking about, and how they presumably throttle our experience of the external world, we're really only saying that our brains have formed connections between these two ideas in the past kickstone and foot bounces off. But those are just ideas, and because those ideas can only truly exist within our minds, Given that we can't directly experience the external world, how can we say with certainty that the one causes the other?
4: So Hume is saying, then, something that sounds suspiciously... Dana,
0: do you remember our agreement about how you have to pronounce anything that was originally expressed by a person of Scottish extraction?
4: Ugh, <laughs> oh, you specky cunt. I'll do in your fucking skull, you boheed. It sounds like what Hume is saying goes even fur than what Berkeley regarding minds and ideas being the only things that exist."
0: I think what our Scandinavian Lassie is saying is that Hume seems to out Berkeley barkley here. But there's a couple of big differences. The first is that Hume is not only skeptical of our experience of a material world outside our minds, he thinks the idea of minds as existing separate from ideas and sensations isn't justified either. Returning to the Stanford Encyclopedia,
4: puts the point succinctly by arguing that we have no perception of the self distinct from our perception of its perceptual states. For my part, when I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble on some particular perception or other of heat or cold, light or shade, love or hatred, pain or pleasure. I can never catch myself at any time without a perception and can never observe anything but the perception. He then argues that in fact the self is nothing but a bundle of different perceptions which succeed each other with an inconceivable rapidity and are in a perpetual flux and movement.
0: So in other words, while we may frequently see ourselves as experiencing perceptions or ideas, Hume maintains there is no self per se that's doing this experiencing, that the impressions and ideas are the only things. Jim Bagot nicely sums up Hume's perspective in his excellent book, A Beginner's Guide to Reality, thus.
9: He concluded simply that we have no means of knowing what, if anything, exists outside of ourselves, and so the question itself is, broadly speaking, a meaningless one. There may well be a reality out there which is the direct cause of all our experiences, but for Hume, experience is everything and cannot be transcended. We can have knowledge of the things we experience, but absolutely no knowledge of what causes these experiences. There may be an independent reality, but we have no way of establishing that such an independent reality exists. Best, then, to deal with what we can know and not dwell too much on the things we can't.
0: We decided to use a clip from the audiobook and give Dana a quick breather.
4: Please tell me we're done with the Scots for this episode?
0: Absolutely. But only because we're moving on to the Germans. Hume's other stance was that, based on his disbelief in minds as distinct from ideas and perceptions, he also didn't see any need for an overarching mind, i.e. the mind of God, to keep all of reality existing in the first place, as Berkeley did. Most of Hume's most controversial work along these lines was not, out of an abundance of caution at the excitability of contemporary religious authorities, published until after his death, at which point they were translated and responded to by another rock star of philosophy, Immanuel Kant. Kant, perhaps the greatest of all of the idealist philosophers, was clearly and heavily influenced by Hume, but took issue with the idea that our perceptions are all that exist. Instead, Kant created a new form of idealism. Again, Stanford.
4: This is Kant's chief argument for epistemological idealism. The view that the way things appear to us essentially reflects our cognitive capacities rather than anything intrinsic to them, combined with indeterminate ontological realism the view that there are things independent of our representations of them, but because our most fundamental ways of representing things cannot be true of them, we cannot know anything about them other than this fact itself.
0: Or, to quote the man himself,
4: there are things given to us as objects of our senses existing outside us, yet we know nothing of them as they may be in themselves, but are acquainted only with their appearances, i.e., with the representations that they reproduce in us because they affect our senses. Accordingly, I by all means avow that there are bodies outside us, i.e. things which, though completely unknown to us, as to what they may be in themselves, we know through the representations which their influence on our sensibilities provide for us, and to which we give the name of a body, which word therefore merely signifies the appearance of this object that is unknown to us, but is nonetheless real.
0: Finally, here's our amateur summary. Kant believed there was a world of real objects, or as he would have it, objects in themselves, but that this is the only thing we can know about those real objects. Other than that brute fact, we can only deal with our ideas of these objects, again, because our perceptions prevent us from perceiving the real world directly, yada, yada, yada. And as Mr. Bagot points out, Kant also placed space and time within the bounds of the human mind and considered it quite a significant innovation, if he said so himself. Kant's the last of the major What is reality anyway, idealists, we're going to spend much time on? But as we make our next move, we'd like to encourage all of you to pick up some of the philosophy books and courses we've outlined in our show notes. The materials that we've used for this section are extensive, though we've done less direct quoting of these sources than usual due to the sheer breadth of the material we're trying to cover. But perhaps the greatest joy of all that you can derive from getting a little more acquainted with the history of Western philosophy is how much more enjoyable it makes listening to the official theme song of the Philosophy Department of the University of Wallamaloo.
2: manual was a
10: real and was very rarely spable. I digger, I digger, was a boozy beggar who could think you under the table. David Hume could have consumed Friedrich Hegel,
11: and Wickenstein was a beer, swine,
12: and was just a schloss to Schlegel.
0: There's nothing
13: nature could not teach about the rising
0: of the wrist.
13: Socrates
0: was Our last brief stop is with Schopenhauer, the famous philosopher of pessimism, who spent much of his time reacting to Kant and, in so doing, forged an interesting connection. In this inter-German spat, Schopenhauer insisted that Kant was wrong talking about things rather than a thing unto itself. In other words, he maintained the very idea of things being separate rather than part of a unified whole was itself a fundamental misapprehension of what reality is. But here we're going to hand this discussion off to an honest-to-God professional. That's Dr. Martin Jay, a renowned intellectual historian and the Sidney Hellman Ehrman Professor of History at UC Berkeley.
3: I'm Martin Jay. I'm Professor Emeritus of History at the University of California, Berkeley. My specialties are... European intellectual history, mostly 19th and 20th century, visual culture, and critical theory. And I'm fascinated by the relationship between philosophy and the real world, and I think this is an excellent uh, sort of lead-in to questions about uh, conspiracy theory. Idealism is an extraordinarily vexed and complex term. Broadly speaking, I would say that there is a preference in idealist explanations uh, of reality for the predominance of spirit, uh, of idea, of notion, of intellect, of concept, over material reality, uh, a predilection that sometimes means that there's a search for something deeper that is uh, ideal, that is different from the empirical reality, from the phenomenal reality, from the reality that we experience. So that idealism tends, in a way, to have what we might call a dual notion of reality in which there's a difference between surface or phenomenon and depth and essence uh, which produces the possibility of distrust for mere appearances. The Platonic tradition believes in the reality of forms that are uh, deeper, higher, more eternal than the appearances that uh, participate in them and that this dichotomy between forms Essences and mere appearances and the particulars which they somehow uh, underline or whatever. The importance of Rene Descartes is enormous for modern philosophy, and there are many different ways to try to tease out uh, the uh, implications for the question of conspiracy in particular. The one that I would stress is the importance of Cartesian doubt. I mean, what Descartes does is to say that we cannot base our judgments about the world, about reality, on authority that we can't uh, base it on scripture. We can't base it on textual residues of the past. But we have to basically clear all of that away and think for ourselves. And we need a method to do this. Uh, And we need a method that involves a kind of rational uh, understanding of the ideas in our minds, that are clear and distinct, that in a way give us access to realities that um certain of our sensual experience and certainly textual, residues of the past will not give us. So this is a theory that in a way prepares the modern world for the skepticism uh, and uh, the distrust of authority, uh, which allows people to begin to think about potential cult of realities that produce uh, conspiracies, now, having said that, Descartes himself was of course not a skeptic and tried to rebuild the world on new foundations, so the whole modern uh, enterprise of science and certain modern philosophies are based on a new way of making sense of the world, which does not rely on say looking at Aristotelian or other uh, classical sources but uh, tries to think for itself in the vernacular of the day in French rather than Latin and so forth so this gives warrant for Uh, scientific method, which itself has a strong, skeptical, and doubting dimension. Now, the other thing about Descartes that's extremely important, and that makes him more of a modern thinker than some of his predecessors, is his interest in causality and mechanical determination. So that one might say, and this is, I think, a, a crucial issue, that prior to modern science, there was an ambiguity about the notion of reason, the notion of cause, the notion of justification of ground. There were efficient causes, uh, causes that came first, causes that led to effects uh, in a kind of uh, temporal way. Uh, You know, you uh, hit yourself uh, in the foot uh, and your foot hurts. Uh, There were also final causes. Aristotle had the notion of final causes, which are teleological. And here the idea is that The purposes that exist in the world, the reasons for something, are not simply uh, given by something that's prior, but by something that will be in the future, uh, a cause that leads to a purpose that is realized by an action in the future. Descartes, in modern science, was highly skeptical of final causes of teleology. Not in all cases, and, you know, organic uh, versions of science sometimes have a different uh, understanding than uh, biological versions than, say, physics, but by and large teleology was to a great extent, banished. I mean, I'm not a serious student of Barclay, but my sense of his um, role is that he was basically a dead end. That is, Barclay thought that uh, the correlation between our ideas and the external world was a function of God producing the ideas in our own minds, that in a way there was no external causation. There was a causation produced by divine intervention. And what this does is short circuit the need to find a correlation or lack thereof between internal ideas, internal perceptions, and external, let's say, objects or external events. So Barclay in a way um, made it too easy. And subsequent idealism, I mean Kant is the great figure because Hume had basically banished uh, from philosophy through his own skepticism, uh, the Berkeleyan solution. I mean, Hume simply said, we just don't have sufficient warrant to make that kind of optimistic assumption about the intervention of God in our own minds. So this led uh, to what Kant famously said was the end of his dogmatic slumber. And what he needed to do was to find a way to avoid the absolute skepticism based, uh, based on simple habit or a kind of non-scientific repetition of... Uh, something that could indeed change in the future without any necessity. He had to recover some sort of, let's say, basis or warrant for the optimism about the scientific method. And he did this through uh, an epistemological idealism, which emphasized the importance of the constitutive subject. But it was not an individual constitutive subject. It was not an historically bounded constitutional subject. It was not a gendered or culturally specific constitutional subject. It was uh, the subject of, in a way, uh, uh, who is all intelligible beings. I mean, we'd say simply all humans, but he went even beyond that. So to have some sort of understanding of the world, to have some sort of uh, regularity in the world, We had to assume that all human beings, no matter their backgrounds, no matter their gender or culture, shared a transcendental consciousness, which had the capacity to order the world. Now by ordering it, it doesn't mean creating uh, the world ex nihilo in terms of content, because there were things in themselves that were out there that he ontologically assumed existed, but which we could not know. What we could know were objects of experience, and that experience was produced by the constitutive faculties, we might say, of the transcendental mind in combination with the stimuli from the external world. So what he called synthetic a priori judgments about that external world involved an a priori quality in the mind, but was synthetic because they produced new knowledge based on uh, the importance of our experience with an external reality. So whether or not this was fully convincing, and of course post-Kantian idealism didn't think so. It at least avoided the skepticism of Hume without retreating into the overly optimistic idealism based on God's intervention in the human minds of a Barclay. I mean, Barclay basically uh, finessed the question of our knowledge of an external reality by saying that it was less important that that external reality had some sort of impact on our consciousness then uh, God's giving us uh, ideas which were commensurate with that external world. So it's a kind of literal deus ex machina, that God comes in and uh, saves the day. Now, Descartes also, in a way, used God, uh, the God who would not deceive, in uh, a way to bridge the gap between consciousness and the external world of extension. It basically was a kind of, I would say, jerry-built solution, which was based on a certain faith that couldn't be proved, it was not scientific, and that ultimately didn't convince people. So what we get with uh, Hume is taking that to a logical extreme and saying, look, we don't have these guarantees. We can't believe. I mean, Hume is basically a, a pagan atheistic uh, non-believer, but in any God does not function for him as a guarantee of the truthfulness of what's in our uh, brains. So he resorts to habit, to convention. Uh, to experience, uh, understood in a certain way, to give us some sort of order, because the world is not utterly random. I mean, I expect the sun to come up tomorrow. It may not. I'm not sure. It doesn't have to. But uh, you know, I, I'm not going to uh, go to sleep worried about that. So Hume is is a man of the world. knows that is not a skeptic uh, who takes it to a radical extreme. And uh, his genius, in a way, is giving us a reassurance that we don't need the guarantees that Barclay and you know, the deists and the others before him, like uh, Descartes, felt we needed to feel secure in a world that no longer believed back in the medieval sense uh, in the universals that could be understood by a simple rationalization. So he is able to live with uncertainty. And what we get with subsequent idealism, with Kant in particular and his followers, is the fear that that's not enough, that you can't live with uncertainty, that we have to find some ground, we have to find some way to verify, we have to find some way to feel that we're not making it up out of whole cloth and that uh, science is more than just uh, a human invention, that it has some um, commensurability with the world as it exists. I mean, Kant was definitely a believer in the importance of Newtonian science and mathematics and all the recent discoveries as a way to understand the natural world. But he also understood that there were limits to its extrapolation to the world of culture, of uh, morality, of human agency. And so he wrote his second critique. Uh, with an interest uh, in the human freedom to intervene in the world. And what it creates is the understanding we might say of the world of history, the world of human action, as a world that is ruled to some extent by uh, prior causes, but also by human actions, by human intentionality, by the possibility of being free rather than being uh, an automaton. Which then, of course, opens the possibility for the types of uh, exaggerated belief in intentionality in which everything has a purpose, in which everything is basically attributable to human intervention. And then, of course, the question is, who are the humans who intervene and how broad and narrow are the people with the power to make an intervention that actually has an ultimate impact. And this is a question that we're still, of course, uh, grappling with. To try to make sense of the Kantian legacy uh, in a soundbite is, of course, impossible because of the variety of issues that he dealt with. Kant has been subjected to 200 years of critique, and so there are a thousand reasons why Kant is wrong. But The fact that he continues to be part of the canon and continues to stimulate an enormous amount of literature, some of which is favorable, uh, some of which tries to salvage aspects of his work, shows that the questions he asked are by no means dead. So one would have to really parse which Kant and what defenses are given. But I would say Kant is still, in important ways, a player. And there are figures in contemporary political theory, I mean, Jurgen Habermas to some extent, for example who derive some of their ideas from a kind of Kantian notion of the limiting of reason, but nonetheless uh, not giving up on a certain kind of reasoning, a certain kind of uh, communicative rationality, which is very different from the strong, emphatic notion of rationality that other uh, idealists like Hegel believed in. Well I think the major relationship between Schopenhauer and Kant has to be understood through their differing understandings of the notion of will. Kant, uh, especially in the second critique, emphasize the importance of human will uh, as opposed to the termination of the natural world so that the causality of freedom can be initiated by humans who can will to follow the categorical imperative follow the laws of reason that are given by some sort of intuitive sense almost of what constitutes an ought what constitutes duty But the crucial thing is that it is a will that is not arbitrary. It's a will that wills according to the law. It chooses to accept the law. And Kantian autonomy involves the ability of the individual to choose correctly, to choose what should be done, to choose what uh, he is obliged or she is obliged to do. Now, they don't have to do it. They have the freedom to uh, avoid following that to sin, we might say. It's an old Christian notion. Perhaps we have the ability to follow God's law or we can sin. Schopenhauer changes this in two ways. First will is not rational. Uh, Will is essentially irrational. Uh, It's like the desire that has no uh, justification. Uh, It simply is uh, a need for something that can't be justified uh, and need not be grounded. It just simply is. So it has a kind of life philosophical notion that's part of something prior to reflection. Uh, prior to human ratiocination. Secondly, the will is not individual. The will is collective. The will is uh, meta-subjective. Uh, the will exists on some deep ontological level so that the world is somehow ruled not by uh, you know, notions of, uh, let's say, Aristotelian rationality or platonic intelligibility, but rather by the pulsing, irrational needs of a will that goes beyond the individual. Now this creates a kind of passivity and a kind of pessimism about the human capacity to shape the world. So one of the lessons that was drawn by Schopenhauerians in uh, especially the mid 19th century after the values of the revolution of 1848 was that the world was not amenable to human control, that the optimism of earlier idealists, Kant and Hegel, basically were optimistic with some qualms. This optimism was misplaced and that instead one had to really submit to a kind of will. So it, uh, you know, had many implications later, a part of uh, the 19th and into the 20th century, where people became basically defeatist about the possibility of uh, utopian or liberal even experiments in changing the world, and Schopenhauerian pessimism could be warrant for a retreat into aestheticism or a retreat into a kind of, let's say, Eastern mystical version of seeing the world as corrupt and trying to get beyond it to something uh, deeper. Now, this is a kind of cartoon version of Eastern thought, but it could be abetted, it could be helped by a Schopenhauerian version of this irrational collective will, very, very different from Kant's version of the will. Was Schopenhauer himself, in his post-Kantian way, open to Eastern ideas? I think in the 19th century in Germany, there was a very imperfect understanding of ideas from Indian or Chinese or other Eastern traditions. And Schopenhauer might have taken some sustenance from Buddhism or whatever, but I think by and large, even without them, he would have come to these notions. There are traditions in the West, mystical perhaps, in theological terms, that may also be seen as uh, anticipating this. I mean, I'm always nervous about these kind of uh, associations with large scale, somewhat cartoon versions of other schools of thought uh but certainly schopenhauer and eastern mysticism could in later years be seen as a package that went against a certain kind of scientific and uh, even skeptical version of uh, Western philosophy. If one wants to think about other philosophical sources to make sense of, say, conspiracy theories and the larger question of how we know the world and what we should be skeptical about and what we should believe, one way to think about it is to think about the relationship between cognition and projection and paranoia. In a Dialect of Enlightenment by Max Horkheimer and Theodor Adorno, a text that I've, you know, over the years been very influenced by. They point out that all cognition has a moment of paranoia, a moment of projection. Now, this is, in a way, a, a kind of reinterpretation of the Kantian idea of the constitutive subject, that we don't know passively. We know through a kind of projection onto the world of various categories that, for Kant, were hardwired, uh, transcendental, universal. you couldn't avoid uh, imposing them. What Horkheimer and Adorno argues that there's also, in historical understanding, not merely understanding the natural world, a certain moment of projection in which we are engaged in a kind of making sense of contingency, making sense of randomness through a kind of a genius desire to see a figure in the carpet, to use the famous phrase from Henry James, that we don't want to be in some ways uh, human skeptics. We want to find some sort of order in the disorder. Now, what this involves is a suspicion of the appearance of disorder on the surface and a belief that there's something deeper, there's something more basic that through a kind of indirect means, not through the immediate evidence of the senses, we can perhaps discern. So the great masters of suspicion, as they were called, this is the term that's introduced by Recur, the great masters of suspicion, Freud. Marx, and I think probably Nietzsche would be the other major figure, all gave us warrant for believing that there were occult forces that we had to understand that were operating behind the backs and against the wills of people. This is Marx's phrase. And therefore, cognition, to get to that deeper level, has to be in some way able to project – and this is the paranoid version of it, given a kind of benign reading – project meaningfulness even purpose and intentionality to a world that seems to be utterly random contingent uh, and meaningless. The problem, of course, is the issue of how far we can go. In other words, we look for too much meaning. We look for too much occult operations beneath the surface. We end up having a kind of almost caricature version, say, of Marxist or Freudian understandings of the world, which everything is a result of the class struggle or result of uh, edible uh, rebellion or whatever the kind of version of those uh, explanations might be. So you can go too far and that there are times when it doesn't provide uh, answers, uh, this kind of desire for meaningfulness, that there is no figure in this particular carpet or the figure is too complex to be reduced to any one thing. But without that desire, the curiosity for intelligibility and perhaps the belief that there is some intentionality behind intelligibility, we would have no knowledge of uh, the world at all. So in a weird way, conspiracy theories are parasitic on what might be seen as healthy versions of even scientific, but certainly historical and cultural knowledge, and therefore they have a kind of plausibility which they would not have in their other fantasies. And we also, of course, know that they're on a spectrum uh, in which there are uh, conspiracies which have been, in fact, proven to be true. Thanks so much to,
0: well, to Dr. J.
4: Is that a second basketball reference?
0: Anyway, thanks for that fascinating interview. And as we prepare to move to our next topic, we want to briefly remind you of Schopenhauer's conclusion that the underlying reality of things unto themselves, as envisioned by Kant, was a misapprehension of a single thing differentiated only by position in time or space, meaning everything is part of a single unitary whole. And we remind you of that because it's at this point that the pessimistic German ended up discovering that an entirely different, unrelated philosophical tradition got there way before he did. Now, if we're amateurs when it comes to Western philosophy,
4: and make no mistake, we absolutely are,
0: Then our knowledge of the philosophical history of Asia,
4: stretching thousands of years before the Greeks and encompassing a broad and varied array of robust cultural and intellectual traditions, along with thousands of important philosophers and mystics,
0: which we are, due to our woeful ignorance, going to have to refer to generally under the umbrella term Eastern philosophy, is virtually a crime against podcasting. But it would be even worse for us to ignore it, so we're going to do our level best. We'll limit ourselves to a quick gloss on the collected ideas of various thinkers in Hindu and Buddhist philosophy and how they have explored our perceptions of self and reality, and in turn, how they came to the conclusion that those very concepts are fucked up from the jump. To do so, we're going to rely on a bunch of white, non-Asian experts, because we don't speak these languages and we're willing to bet you don't either. So we take what we can get.
4: Yeah, so get off our dick... In his course,
0: Great Minds of the Eastern Intellectual Tradition, Professor Grant Hardy starts us off with the Hindu Vedas and Upanishads. These scriptures and hymns are among the most ancient religious writing in the world and outline the basics of the philosophy that would underpin not only modern Hinduism, but also eventually Buddhism and other important religions. The key concepts for our purposes within those texts are Atman,
4: or the unchanging eternal self,
0: and Brahman,
4: The ultimate external reality that creates and sustains the universe.
0: Hardy continues.
4: The sage's great breakthrough is the equation Atman equals Brahman. The essence of you is identical to the essence of everything else. In the West, this idea is called monism. Our experience of being separate from everyone and everything is an illusion. Moksha comes when we realize this and can be reabsorbed into Brahman, the great world soul.
0: I should note here that moksha is the escape from the endless cycle of death and rebirth that underpins many Eastern religions, where most Western religions are predicated on the desirability of living forever in paradise. Both of the Eastern religious philosophies we're considering are focused on getting out of this whole endless living thing and merging instead with some sort of universal soul, losing all individual identity in the process.
4: Which individual identity, again, is seen as an illusion in the first place?
0: There's actually some really solid scientific reasoning behind the idea that the self is an illusion, which we'll delve into when we cover consciousness next time. But it's amazing to think that, as Schopenhauer realized, Asian religions got to this conclusion thousands of years ago. The other major figure whose thought we need to contend with is Siddhartha Gautama, or as literally everyone better knows him, the Buddha. Like most religious founders, Gautama's life is some combination of fact and myth, with later interpreters adding a variety of unlikely miracle stories around his birth.
4: For example, immediately after his birth, he took seven steps forward. A lotus flower instantly bloomed in each step, and he then recited a poem about how important his birth was. Gangsta.
0: But the more reliable parts of the story are remarkable enough. Born in modern-day Nepal in either the 6th or 5th century BC, he was a prince who grew up in luxury, married and had a son, before being overcome with the artificiality of his life. He gave it all up at age 29, leaving the palace and his family behind to become a wandering ascetic holy man. For six years, he traveled with and learned from Hindu ascetics, before realizing that he didn't feel like he was learning anything from starving himself and living in filth. He was just hungry and gross. He then formulated what he called the middle way, a mode of living that was neither the sensual world of the palace nor the purely abstemious world of asceticism. His philosophy took a number of ideas from Hinduism, but uniquely he taught that there was no such thing as a soul. Hardy again.
4: All sentient beings are composite, transient and soulless. Any grasping at permanence ends in failure and suffering. Enlightenment is simply realizing that there is no part of you that is eternal and lasting. Instead, you are a combination of the five aggregates. A body, feelings, perceptions, dispositions, and consciousness, all of which are changing all of the time.
0: You may well hear echoes of Hume's assertion that when we consider the self, all we find are appetites and perceptions, right?
4: So some of those aggregates may outlast your body and be reincarnated in another collection of matter. But if, for example, the collection of aggregates that calls itself fearful Jesuit could overcome the illusion that there is a fearful Jesuit who has needs and ambitions and desires, then his aggregates would simply dissipate after his death, and then this not jesuit could find peace and permanence in nirvana. Come on, Jesuit. The not-self that your aggregates have yet to dispel the illusion of should be better than that.
0: The Buddha's is a truly radical philosophy, that the solution to suffering and Buddhism asserts that all existence is suffering, is not trying to alleviate it, since all such attempts are necessarily temporary. Rather, the key is in realizing that there is no self to do the suffering. So those are the two main topics we wanted to cover in our brief tour through Eastern Ideas about reality and selfhood. But there are many more. As Buddhism traveled from its homeland in India,
4: where it's really not very popular these days, To
0: East Asian countries like China, Korea, and Japan.
4: Where it remains extremely popular.
0: It encountered native philosophies like Confucianism and especially Taoism, which has its own unique approach to these topics. We'll include one particularly resonant story here, from the Taoist philosopher Zhuangzi and his famous butterfly dream.
4: Once Zhuangzi dreamed he was a butterfly, a butterfly flitting and fluttering about, happy with himself and doing as he pleased. He didn't know that he was Zhuangzi. Suddenly, he woke up, and there he was, solid and unmistakably Zhuangzi. But he didn't know if he was Zhuangzi who had dreamt he was a butterfly, or a butterfly dreaming that he was Zhuangzi.
0: I'm just saying, these folks had a lot going on, even a very long time ago. Okay, we're about to throw up our ignorant hands at getting across anything more here, but we're going to leave you with a few clips from the famous English-American popularizer of Eastern philosophy, Alan Watts. Yes, he's considered a dilettante by many important Zen Buddhist thinkers, but we still believe the way he brings to life the idea of Maya, that is, the Hindu concept of the world as illusion, is quite helpful.
14: M-A-Y-A. This is one of the most rich ideas that has ever been thought by the mind of man, because it has such a great multiplicity of meanings. Our world is wiggly. We are, all of us are wiggly objects. Trees are Rocks are, clouds are, waters are, the outlines of islands, and so on. It's all wiggly. And so in that sense, the the universe is rather like an enormous Rorschach plot. The basic form of the cosmic game, according to the Hindu view, is the game of hide and seek. Or you might call it the game of lost and found. Or again, now you see it, now you don't so that one doesn't realize union with the self after death later than a certain time all references to the hereafter should correctly be understood as the herein as a domain deeper than egocentric consciousness that is to say when you get down to the bottom of the egocentric consciousness you get to its limit which is figuratively its death then you go on inwards the self deeper than the conscious attention and in that way you go inwards to eternity you don't go onwards to eternity to go onwards is to find only time and time and time and more time and more time in which things go round, and round, and round, forever. But to go in is to go to eternity. But in the ordinary way, when we're talking about this graphically and vividly, in imagistic terms, we can talk about the everlasting game of (coughs) hide-and-seek, which the self plays with itself. It forgets who it is and then creeps up behind itself and says, BOOM! And that's a great thrill. It pretends that things are getting serious, just as a great actor on the stage. Although the audience know that what they're seeing is only a play, the skill of the actor is to take the audience in and to have them all sitting in anxiety on the edges of their seats or to be weeping or laughing or utterly involved in what they really know is only a play. So you would imagine that if there were a very great actor with absolutely superb technique, he would take himself in and he, you see, would feel that the play was real. Well, that's their idea of what we're doing here and now. We are all, the Brahman, acting our own parts, being human, playing the human game so beautifully that he is enchanted. You see what enchanted means? Under the influence of a chant, hypnotized, spellbound, fascinated. And that fascination is Maya.
0: We've gotten an overview of philosophers tackling these concepts, but you know how these weirdos can get. Now it's time for some reassuring information from those stolid, boring, lab coat bedecked, reliable purveyors of sane, unchanging data, scientists. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. It turns out that bit you just heard from Watts about reality being wiggly it's far more true in science than you might ideally prefer. Going back to our original problem, we're apparently conscious minds living in discrete physical bodies in a physical world. But aside from medicine, and especially neurology, most sciences haven't traditionally been particularly concerned about the niceties of how exactly our minds work, or how we are able to apprehend the world in the first place. Since the Copernican Revolution, when the mental heavyweights stopped parroting ancient wisdom received from Aristotle in the Catholic Church— And started backing an empirical, evidence based approach to gaining progressive knowledge of the physical world, scientists from Galileo to Newton began using hypotheses, increasingly accurate measurements, and testable theories to make the world more intelligible. They had an unprecedented, completely amazing success rate. Up through the mid nineteenth century, everything in the sciences seemed to be converging into a clear, rational picture of a highly mechanistic, almost clockwork universe where a few simple, albeit brilliant insights like Newton's laws of motion and Maxwell's equations for electromagnetism, were on the verge of making everything in the past and future of the material cosmos completely predictable.
4: In other words, there was a widespread belief among scientists that if we could ever gain sufficient knowledge of the position and motion of all of the matter in the universe at a specific time, we would be able to completely predict everything that would ever happen in the future, at least in principle.
0: But then shit went and got super weird. Professor Stephen Gimbel has a great courses series on this topic called Redefining Reality, and we strongly recommend it if you're interested in the ways that the last century and a half has, in a sense, been one of ever-increasing strangeness in basically every major scientific discipline. There are too many examples to cover here, but let's just consider mathematics and geometry for a moment. Gimbel explains how 19th century mathematicians were perplexed by their inability to derive the fifth postulate of Euclid's geometry.
4: Briefly that lines pathing through two different points that are not parallel will eventually intersect.
0: They kept at it, though, seeking to perfect this ancient and incredibly beautiful system. They failed, but in the attempt, they very cleverly and completely inadvertently managed to derive entirely new geometries that were consistent with the fifth postulate, but not the original four. Worse, these geometries were just as valid as the one Euclid had constructed, given slightly different starting assumptions. Meaning that it was entirely possible to construct an elaborate geometry that looked nothing like the rules that we had used to build our understanding of the real world. Then, in 1931, in the wake of philosopher and mathematician Bertrand Russell's majestic attempt to construct a complete proof for mathematics, another math genius named Kurt Gödel threw everything into an even bigger kerfuffle, not only blowing a hole in Russell's beautiful edifice, but in doing so, proving that he would be able to do the same with any other sufficiently complex system yet again we're way above our pay grade here but the way we understand it from a variety of sources including douglas hofstadter's math music and computer science classic godel escher bach godel's discovery meant that it would always be possible in any complex system to construct a statement that was essentially paradoxical he proved in essence that it's always within the mathematical realm of possibility to create the equivalent of this statement is false
4: that is a statement that if true proves its falsity And if false, prove that it is true. In other words, a statement that will always produce an absurd result.
0: As we indicated earlier, this is only the first of many similar crises in science that, overall, as Dr. Gimbel puts it, gradually teach us that what we assumed are individual, separate, and specific concepts eventually are seen as part of a much grander, more complex, and harder to comprehend web of interdependencies. The undisputed winner of the Weird Scientific Developments of the 20th Century Award is, of course, the study of reality at its most basic, physics. The 20th century revolution in this science kicked off when a patent clerk spent the year 1905 proving, among several other things, that Isaac Newton, still perhaps the most brilliant scientist the world has yet known, got a bunch of stuff wrong about stars, planets, galaxies, and motion in the most unexpected ways. Later, he and a bunch of other smarty pantses went on to prove that at the smallest scales, the entire universe is absolutely, positively the weirdest fucking thing that anyone has ever imagined. It's not in any way an exaggeration to say that we are still dealing with the repercussions of these discoveries in terms of how we piece together our view of reality. First, let's gloss over the astonishing insights from the guy with the crazy hair, Einstein, starting with his miracle year of 1905.
4: When, in addition to his special theory of relativity, he also revolutionized the understanding of light, the motion of atoms, the relationship of space and time, and the equivalence of mass and energy.
0: And ending with the year 1915, when he introduced his general theory of relativity. In this time, he rewrote all the rules governing how stuff in the universe interacts. Among many, many other important and deeply unsettling things, Einstein proved the following. One that there's no such thing as a universal ether that everything moves through. Newton had suggested this hypothetical substance in order to explain both how light and gravity propagated themselves through space, and as the background against which the absolute motion of everything in space could be measured. Einstein did away with the whole thing, which people had been arguing about for a couple centuries. Two? While we're at it, there's no such thing as absolute motion in the universe, as Newton and most everybody else had previously presumed. Instead, you can only measure the motion of an object with regard to another object. Three. Also, there's no such thing as space. Or time. Or, more accurately, the two are inextricably bound together in a single concept called spacetime. Four. No, we're not kidding. They're really kind of the same thing, as in, the faster you go through space, the slower you move through time. By the way, feel free to doubt this. Physicists apparently receive thousands of supposed refutations from amateur Einstein skeptics every year. But every single measurement we've ever made since the theory was proposed has proved its reliability. Five. But don't worry, there is an official speed limit in the universe. It's the speed of light. Why? I have no fucking idea, but it apparently makes sense to the physicists. Regardless, you can't go faster than light. It's literally baked into the structure of the universe. Six. And if you're traveling at a thousand miles per hour in the same direction as a beam of light, it travels 186,000 miles per second ahead of you. But if you're traveling 100,000 miles per second along the same route, it still moves faster than you at 186,000 miles per second. And if you're going 100,000 miles per second in the opposite direction, that same beam of light still goes 186,000 miles per second relative to you. you, you, It's a real mindfuck. Seven? What else? You need more? Okay, assholes, gravity is actually a curvature of space. It's like a 3D version of what happens when you roll a ball in a circle on a trampoline with your fat uncle in the middle, and the ball tends to want to fall toward the center. And it turns out that if an object of sufficient mass collapses on itself...
4: Not your uncle. Like, say, a star three or more times as large as our sun.
0: ...then that mass will cause it to collapse completely, creating an area of space in which gravity is so intense that even light, that scofflaw of speed, can't escape.
4: It's almost... Like a hole in space that's super dark. Like, so dark is the opposite of white. Somebody should come up with a good name for that. Eight.
0: Also, it turns out that you can turn matter into energy. This one yielded the cogito ergo sum of physics equations, E equals mc squared, and even more impactfully paved the way for nuclear weapons. Nine. Oh, and as a bonus, it turns out Einstein's theory indicated the universe, instead of being infinitely old and of a stable size, would most likely be expanding or collapsing. BT dubs, E-Man hated the fuck out of this last idea and in fact created a whoopsie factor he called the cosmological constant so that his theory would result in the steady-state universe everyone expected. But later observations ended up proving that, in spite of Einstein's own doubts, The universe was actually expanding at an increasingly rapid rate, leading directly to the theory and observations that would establish its origins in a big bang 14 billion years ago. There's much more, but we think that's enough mind-blowing for one unqualified host channeling a brilliant physicist to lay on a podcast audience. Seriously, think about how unexpected, how counter to the way we observe the world working, that these conclusions are. Space is curved, and in fact can get so curved sometimes that not even light can escape? Traveling faster makes time move slower.
4: And, incidentally, increases your inertia?
0: Literally nothing can go faster than light, no matter what, and it isn't a matter of applying more energy, it's just written into the structure of the universe. You can turn ordinary matter into energy, and in fact doing so produces an astonishing amount of the latter from a few grams of the former. And that's part of the reason why the sun shines? Many of us have heard some or all of these things, but imagine how weird they were for people who were raised in a world where they expected the ongoing progress of science to render the universe ever more explicable. Einstein threw a permanent monkey wrench into that expectation. But what came next was vastly, almost unimaginably, more fucked up, because what came next is quantum mechanics.
15: Just from a paranoid strain. Kill all your livestock and drink all your grain. People screaming, stonehead.
0: There's a lovely quote attributed to super genius quantum theorist Richard Feynman, and it goes something like this.
4: If you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand quantum mechanics.
0: As perfectly phrased as that is, it's actually a later gloss on what the man actually said. In relating quantum theory to relativity, then the standard bearer for esoteric scientific theories, Feynman implied that a bunch of people understood relativity, but, and here's the actual quote,
4: on the other hand, I think I can safely say that nobody understands quantum mechanics.
0: Quantum founding father, Niels Bohr, expressed a similar sentiment, which Dana will... Wait. Holy living fuck, Bohr was Danish. You know what that means? Dana Unicorn finally gets to say something that sounds normal in her native accent.
4: Yay.
0: Well, I'm excited. Unicorn, take it away.
4: Ms. you said set quantum mechanics you use not
0: And DU's translation? This is entirely her own without scripting from me or use of TE Internets.
4: If you can grasp quantum mechanics without getting dizzy, you didn't grasp anything at all.
0: We're so proud. Point is, quantum mechanics is a real pain in the ass conceptually, even to those who figured it out in the first place. So here again, we're only going to be able to offer the most surface gloss on these concepts, both due to the limits of our audience's attention span and due to our total lack of expertise. But let's try to barrel through this incredibly strange story. It arose initially out of very odd results from efforts to address a long-standing dispute about whether light behaves as a particle or a wave. It turns out there are some extremely confusing things that happen when you perform what has come to be known as the double-slit experiment. At the time, i.e. the beginning of the 19th century, there were very good reasons to believe light was a particle, because Newton's incredibly robust, well-supported, and generally badass laws of motion indicated it should be. But some other observers thought it behaved in many instances more like a wave.
4: But of course, the thing is, it had to be one or the other, right?
0: Well, I mean, obviously... So way back in 1801, Thomas Young sought to prove that light was a wave, as his experiments with sound had led him to conclude, and not a particle per Newton. There's a super useful and surprisingly lucid,
4: considering the subject matter,
0: series on YouTube produced by PBS and called Space Time since they're clearly better at this than we would be, we're going to let them take it from here as we explore the extremely surprising ways that Young's original experiment gradually transformed into a series of shocking results.
16: A source of light passing through two very thin slits produces bands of light and dark stripes, alternating regions of constructive and destructive interference on a screen. Of course, we now know that light is a wave in the electromagnetic field thanks to the work of James Clerk Maxwell a century later. So it makes perfect sense that it should produce an interference pattern, right? But wait, we also know that light comes in indivisible little bundles of electromagnetic energy called photons. Einstein demonstrated this through the photoelectric effect. So each photon is a little bundle of waves, waves of electromagnetic field and each bundle can't be broken into smaller parts. That means that each photon should have to decide whether it's going to go through one slit or the other. It can't split in half and then recombine on the other side. But here, we get to one of the craziest experimental results in all of physics the interference pattern is seen even if you fire those photons one at a time. If you keep firing those single photons you start to see our interference pattern emerge once again. This is so bizarre. This pattern has nothing to do with how each photon's energy gets spread out. Each photon dumps all of its energy at a single point. No, the pattern emerges in the distribution of final positions of many completely unrelated photons. How can that be? Each photon has no idea where previous photons landed or where future photons will land. Yet each photon reaches the screen knowing which regions are the most likely landing spots and which are the least likely. It knows the interference pattern of a pure wave that passed through both slits equally, and it chooses its landing point based on that.
0: Get that? No? Fair enough. And once again, this is definitely one of those topics where the limitations of an audio-only format feel acute. Essentially, these experiments unexpectedly prove that even when scientists fired individual photons, which you could think of as sort of light particles and which shouldn't behave like a wave at all, Each individual photon would impact on the screen based on the same interference pattern you see when you fire a beam of light, which does behave like a wave.
4: If you still don't get it, check the show notes where we'll have plenty of links including to the very video you were just listening to.
0: Suffice it to say, this makes no conventional sense. Let's start with what we do know about the double slit result.
16: We know where the particle is at both ends. It starts its journey wherever we put the laser, and it releases its energy at a well-defined spot on the screen. So the particle seems to be more particle-like at either end, but wave-like in between. That wave holds the information about all the possible final positions of the particle, but also about its possible positions at every stage in the journey. In fact, the wave must map out all possible paths that the particle could take. We have this family of could-be trajectories from start to finish and for some reason when the wave reaches the screen it chooses a final location. And that implies choosing from these possible paths. So what causes this transition between a wave of many possibilities and a well-defined thing at a particular
0: spot? From these experiments arose two different explanations, each of which is its own real pain in the ass. We'll let space-time explain the first.
16: Let's talk about the view favored by Werner Heisenberg and Niels Bohr, who pioneered quantum mechanics at the University of Copenhagen in the 1920s. The Copenhagen interpretation says that the wave function doesn't have a physical nature. Instead, it's comprised of pure possibility. It suggests that a particle traversing the double slit experiment exists only as a wave of possible locations that ultimately encompasses all possible paths. It's only when the particle is detected that a location and the path it took to get there are decided. The Copenhagen interpretation calls this transition from a possibility space to a defined set of properties the collapse of the wave function. It tells us that prior to the collapse, it's meaningless to try to define a particle's properties. It's almost like the universe is allowing all possibilities to exist simultaneously, but holds off choosing which actually happened until the last instant. In the Copenhagen interpretation, that final choice of the experiment of the universe
0: is fundamentally random within the constraints of the final wave function. But the second, weirder explanation is the many-worlds hypothesis. This one states that for each quantum wave function collapse, as in the double-slit experiment, both possibilities happen, each in a different reality. The most out-there version of this theory essentially posits that each time a wave function collapses, it creates two distinct universes, one where the photon went through one slit and one where it went through the other.
4: Again, this is not the most popular interpretation. But it is, honest to God, still in the running as a potential explanation of this incredibly weird set of results.
0: You'll also recall that this was the idea that underpinned the recent and excellent Into the Spider-Verse film.
2: In your universe, there's only one Spider-Man. But there is another universe. It looks and sounds like yours, but it's not.
0: That's not the most important thing, though. The most important thing is that these initial experiments, when combined with other weird results from various other physics supergeniuses in the early part of the 20th century, led to the development of an incredibly robust and reliable theory for how matter works at the smallest scales. A model that even now is so deeply and unsettlingly weird that it beggars human understanding. But because there are so many of these weird effects, and because we're so desperately out of our depth here, we are going to bring back an old friend to help us keep this thing moving along. Dana, unleash the lightning round.
4: As long-time listeners will know, this means that we're limiting ourselves to two minutes to address each of these insanely complicated topics.
0: Hopefully each of these concepts will make you think, wait, what? And assuming that's true, we once again implore you to look through any of the multitude of excellent resources we've compiled in our show notes. Now, let's synopsize some of the most subtle and interesting findings in modern physics. Schrodinger's cat. This one relates back to the Copenhagen interpretation of the double-slit experiments we heard about earlier. It refers to a thought experiment dreamed up by Erwin Schrodinger, an important Austrian quantum physicist in his own right, to illustrate how absurd certain elements of the theory look when applied at everyday space and time
6: scales. He imagined taking a cat and placing it in a sealed box with a device that had a 50% chance of killing the cat in the next hour. At the end of that hour, he asked, What is the state of the cat? Common sense suggests that the cat is either alive or dead, but Schrodinger pointed out that according to quantum physics, at the instant before the box is opened, the cat is equal parts alive and dead at the same time. It's only when the box is opened that we see a single definite state. Until then, the cat is a blur of probability, half one thing and half the other. This seems absurd, which was Schrodinger's point. He found quantum physics so philosophically disturbing that he abandoned the theory he had helped make and turned to writing about biology. As absurd as it may seem though, Schrodinger's cat is very real. In fact, it's essential. If it weren't possible for quantum objects to be in two states at once, the computer you're using to watch this couldn't exist.
0: Recall, the idea behind the Copenhagen interpretation was that any quantum effect exists as both a wave and a particle until it's collapsed by the act of observing it. Schrödinger's point, then, is that while this kind of oddity seems a little easier to swallow when we're talking about it affecting indescribably small particles, it becomes far harder to deal with when you imagine an unobserved wave function determining whether or not an animal would die.
4: Or, more accurately, when you imagine such a system pulling the whole apparatus, cat, box and all, into a state of quantum uncertainty, where the cat exists as both dead and alive until such a time as you open the box, i.e. observe the phenomenon and thereby collapse the wave. Heisenberg's Uncertainty Principle.
0: Speaking of weird... Werner Heisenberg, one of the fathers of quantum theory, established back in 1927 that there are certain attributes of particles that cannot be known simultaneously. The classic example is that the more accurately you know of a particle's position, the less you can know about its momentum. This one has frequently been a talking point for those who want to establish some sort of version of reality where conscious observers are creating that reality.
4: A la Bishop Berkeley earlier, though for the modern popular version, imagine that slinger of horseship, Deepak Chopra, of which more later. When you get down
0: to it though, there's a pretty understandable reason for this, explained here by the one and only Neil deGrasse Tyson. I want to know where you
17: are. So I turn on the lights and I say there you are. All right. Now, let's make you tinier. Let's make you mini-me, okay, like in the movie. Um, Right. So now it's a tiny version of you. I turn on the lights. You're still there. Because if the lights are not on, I can't see you. I don't know where you are. Right. It's that simple. Okay. Okay? When you start becoming the size of molecules, right on down to the size of an atom, and I ask the question, where is the atom? And I turn on the light. To see you there, because I think you're there, the light, the photon comes in, hits your atom, and pops you into another location. Mm. The very act of trying to measure your position prevents me from measuring your position. And it has have jack shit to do with your consciousness or your mind or your eyes or anything. It has to do with the fact that to know you're there, some information has to come from you to me, like shining a light on you. And the smaller you are, the more susceptible you are to the the, the energy of the light changing your position
0: in space.
4: Quantum entanglement.
0: Remember about two minutes ago when we were talking about Schrodinger's cat? Those
4: were the days.
0: It turns out that infamous thought experiment was an attempt to illustrate a situation highlighted by Einstein and collaborators in a 1935 paper on that damned Copenhagen interpretation. So hot right now. One of the objections raised by the authors was that there could arise situations in which the spin...
4: Which means a specific thing we don't understand in quantum physics
0: of two particles could be paired with each other such that physics required the two would have opposite spins. For further weird quantum reasons, it turns out that this spin concept isn't really all that solidly established until it's measured. But the one thing you can definitively say about it, we're assured, is that when you measure one of the spins as being up, the other will definitely have a downspin. This is where Einstein's objection comes in. Remember, the speed of light is an absolute limit on how fast anything can travel in the universe. But, as Eman noted, if you take these two particles and send them to different locations, even several light years apart, then measure the spin of particle A, the spin of particle B would then have to be the opposite.
4: Which seems to violate that aforementioned light speed limit, since this measurement would appear to determine the spin of particle B light years away instantaneously when you measured A.
0: Which should be impossible. Unless, of course, something even fucking weirder was happening.
4: Which, as it turns out, is indeed the case.
0: That's right. In spite of the fact that, as Einstein established, nothing can move faster than light, it turns out that for these sorts of paired particles, measuring one instantaneously affects the other, even if they're separated by millions of light years.
4: What the holy fuck?
0: Yeah, I know. In his excellent book on this topic, appropriately titled Spooky Action at a Distance, science journalist George Musser explains it thus.
4: The world we experience possesses all of the qualities of locality. We have a strong sense of place and of the relations among places. And yet quantum mechanics and other branches of physics now suggest that at a deeper level, there may be no such thing as place and no such thing as distance. Physics experiments can bind the fate of two particles together, so that they behave like a pair of magic coins. If you flip them, each will land on heads or tails, but always on the same side as its partner. They act in a coordinated way, even though no force passes between them.
0: And why is this the case? No fucking idea. Finally, let's consider...
4: Virtual particles and a universe from nothing.
0: The hits keep coming. No, no, hold off, boy. We need a little more time for this last one. So the one thing we learn about the universe as we go through our science classes as kids is that, as Douglas Adams once put it,
4: Space is big. Really big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the road to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space.
0: Right, maybe you've seen or heard some of the demonstrations of how vastly unimaginably empty, even comparatively densely packed pockets like our solar system are. We chose this one where a relatable young BBC dude in a leather jacket brings a marble-sized earth to a soccer field he insists on calling a football
10: pitch.
11: Even when the earth is scaled down to the size of a marble, the sun is still nearly a meter and a half across. 1.3 million Earths can fit inside the sun, in fact this lovely big ball of plasma accounts for 99.86% of the entire solar system's mass. At around 58 million miles from the sun, or at our scale the length of roughly five London buses, we encounter the first planet, Mercury, which compared to the sun would be the size of a tiny teeny weeny little pea. And now we come to the last rocky planet of the inner solar system. Named after the Roman god of war, Mars is 80 million kilometers from the Earth and although at this scale it's less than a centimeter across, we are now around two and a quarter football pitches away from the sun. We're nearly one and a half kilometers away from our model sun on this glorious industrial estate and Saturn is the size of a shot put. Although once you add on the magnificent rings it more than doubles in size. Continuing our journey another 1.7 billion kilometers and we come to our next planet. It's another blue beauty. Neptune is also similar in size to a snooker ball, but we're now four and a half kilometers from our starting point, which is about four and a half billion.
0: Anyway, as he maps out the relative distances of the tiny planets to the tiny sun, it quickly becomes clear just how much of what we envision as our solar system model dangling from a classroom ceiling crafted desultrally in styrofoam by fourth graders is actually just empty space. Again, compared to most of the universe, this empty-ass solar system we call home is a Tokyo subway at rush hour. Most of space is way more uninhabited by matter than our local area. In short, the universe is just unfathomably empty.
4: Actually, quick aside, as we feel we should mention this, at least in passing, based on the rotation of galaxies and the fact that the expansion of our universe is accelerating, the best current model of the large-scale structure of the universe is that everything we can measure that is, everything that's included in the standard model of quantum mechanics, including stars, planets, etc., only makes up about 5% of the mass of the universe. The rest is currently called dark matter and dark energy, which are really just placeholder terms until we figure out what the hell we're actually talking about. So space contains more than just the shiny stuff. But still, point stands. Back to
0: that empty space. It turns out, as physicist Lawrence Krauss notes, all of that nothing out there isn't
18: as dull and empty as you might assume. If you take empty space, and that means get rid of all the particles, all the radiation, absolutely everything, so there's nothing there, if that nothing weighs something, then it contributes a term like this. Now, that sounds ridiculous. Why should nothing weigh something? Nothing is nothing. The answer is nothing isn't nothing anymore in physics because of the laws of quantum mechanics and special relativity on extremely small scales. Nothing is really a boiling, bubbling brew of virtual particles that are popping in and out of existence in a time scale so short you can't see them. The point is, we can't measure virtual particles directly, but we can measure their effects indirectly. And, in fact, they're responsible for the best predictions in physics. This is the space inside of a proton.
0: To clarify, he's showing you a visual
18: of a bunch of moving blue blobs. The empty space inside of a proton. Not where the quarks are, but the empty space between the quarks. And this this is an animation, but it's an exact animation coming from physical calculations. This is what the space looks like. Now, how do we know that? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one of the things are, it turns out most of the mass of the proton comes not from the quarks within a proton, but from the empty space between the quarks. These fields popping in and out of existence, produce about 90% of the mass of a proton. And since protons and neutrons are the dominant stuff in your body, the empty space is responsible for 90% of your mass. So, these empty space is vital to science, and these calculations are vital to understanding not just protons, but electrons and atoms, and produce the best comparisons, the, and I will repeat this, the best comparisons between theory and experiment in all of science. To 10 decimal places in quantum electrodynamics, using these calculations, we can get the right answer. Okay, so
0: most of even atoms is empty space. But that empty space is also where most of the mass of those atoms comes from. No, I don't get it either. But here's the big idea. Krauss and others, including string theory poster boy Brian Greene, believe that much of the action in the universe is from virtual particles that form, collide with their exact opposite virtual particles, and then disappear almost immediately. This idea yields a concept called quantum foam. We'll have another physicist, Dr. Don Lincoln of Fermilab, explain what this is. Again, apologies that you can't see the video.
9: The image you're seeing gives you an idea of the smallest quantum reality. The flickering colors represent the constant creation and destruction of matter and antimatter. Electrons and antimatter electrons, quarks and antimatter quarks, they are created from nothing and disappear back into nothingness. We can see that when we look at what is going on at the smallest and most quantum scales that empty space is actually extremely busy. Scientists have a name for these effervescent subatomic objects. They are called virtual particles. There are lots of other ways to visualize this, but one way is to think of the foam on a particularly fizzy root beer. If you look closely, you can see bubbles appearing and disappearing in an ever-changing way. For this reason, some scientists call these virtual particles Quantum foam.
4: Okay, so we have empty space, but it turns out that it is not as empty as we thought, what with all the dark stuff. And also, at the smallest scales, virtual particles are created and almost instantly destroyed in a constant chaos called quantum foam. That's really unsettling.
0: Agreed. Though, we'll let Dr. Krauss deliver perhaps the weirdest implication for our understanding of these quantum effects and what they might mean for how our universe
7: came to be in the first place. There's lots of energy everywhere. How can you say that the energy of the universe is zero?
18: Well, let me take you back to one of your favorite times, high school physics, okay? So I throw a coin up in the air, comes back down. I throw it up faster, goes a little higher, comes back down. If I throw up really fast, it doesn't come back down at all, as long as we forget the roof and all the rest of the stuff. Well, we teach high school students one way to calculate that. We turn it into accounting. It turns out the energy of the coin has a positive piece, we call it the kinetic energy, Mm -hmm. and a negative piece, which is the potential energy due to gravity. It's actually negative. And we add those two pieces up. And if you make the positive piece big enough, so the total energy is positive, it'll escape without coming back down. If the total energy is exactly zero, where the positive spe- energy from the speed is equal to the negative energy from gravity, then it'll, it'll uh, just escape, it'll, it'll go up, slow down, never quite stopping. So you see, gravity has this negative piece. And if you can balance the two, the total energy can be zero. And in fact, what's amazing is it turns out, in fact, one of the other great discoveries in the last 20 years, is we've measured the geometry of the universe. Einstein told us that space is curved in the presence of matter. And one of the big questions of cosmology, the 20th century, in fact, was what's the curvature of the universe? Is it so-called open, closed, or flat? Flat being the boundary between a universe that closes on itself and one that's open. And it turns out that we've discovered the universe is flat. Well, what's amazing is it turns out in a flat universe, the energies add up to be precisely zero. The energy of every galaxy measure their speeds and then you work out the attraction the two add up to precisely zero an amazing discovery that that confirms this notion that not only is the universe flat and mathematically beautiful but begins to give this inkling that maybe 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 we could come from nothing you know when we look on earth yeah there's lots of energy and it's a really weird concept mm-hmm. and throughout our discussion I suspect we may violate common sense <laughs> and the point is why should the universe obey our common sense we evolved on the savannah to avoid lions and, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't evolve to understand quantum mechanics. And so one of the great things about science is it forces us to refine our idea of what's common sense. It forces us to have our beliefs conform to the evidence of reality rather than the other way around. The universe may not be like we'd like it to be, but it doesn't really care. The simplest version of nothing, it might be empty space, just uh, the nothing of the Bible, an infinite, dark, empty void. But as I've been mentioning, that empty space is actually quite complicated. When we put together quantum mechanics and relativity, two of the f- foundations of 20th century physics, we put them together and we find out that empty space is actually a boiling, bubbling brew of virtual particles popping in and out of existence every second. So quickly you can't see them. In fact, if you tried to measure them, they're not there. But they have an impact that we can actually calculate and predict. And it, in fact, it produces the best predictions in all of physics. It explains why the atoms in your body behave the way they do and in fact why your body has mass. Now some people say well if there's virtual particles there it's really not nothing but there are no real particles you try and measure things there there's nothing but those virtual particles can give space energy and in fact we discovered to our great surprise it won the nobel prize two years ago that that empty space has energy and if you put energy in empty space then it's really strange because it's not like the normal energy the you and I. it's not gravitationally attractive it's actually repulsive and we have discovered the expansion of the universe is not slowing down like any sensible universe should do. It's actually speeding up. It's getting faster and faster and that's because it's dominated by the energy of empty space. But it actually gets a little more interesting because you might say, well look, that's not nothing because there's still space. And I say, okay, but it turns out when you p- apply quantum mechanics to gravity, then even space itself can pop into existence from nothing. Space and time can spontaneously pop into existence. You, whole universes can pop into existence. And most of them will disappear in a time scale so short you wouldn't know about it. The ones that can survive for a long time have zero total energy. <laughs> and so you're beginning to see the thread here.
4: So, wait, I know he just told us that's speculative. But did you really bring us through all of that to tell us that modern physics thinks maybe the whole universe, which is mostly made out of nothing may have spontaneously emerged out of nothing, and for no reason?
0: Well, yeah. And to throw another spanner into this whole scenario, there's a different dude who wrote a book called Why Does the World Exist? In this rollicking tome, author and philosopher Jim Holt traces the history of this question, starting from the declaration of early Christian fathers that God created the universe from nothing, no further explanations required, to modern cosmological calculations indicating that universes from nothing, as physicists understand the term, are potentially not even that difficult to create.
4: And, perhaps disturbingly, that creating such universes might be within the remit of some human tinkerers over the next few centuries, assuming that technological advancement continues at a geometric rate.
0: As you can hear in the man's TED talk, he hits on many of the topics we've covered here. You know, one theory is that God was so
19: bored with pondering the puzzle of his own existence that he created the world, you know, just to distract himself. But anyway, so let's forget about God. So we have, take out of the equation, we have blank plus nothing equals the world. Now, if you're a Buddhist, you might want to stop right there. Because essentially you've got, what you've got is nothing equals the world, and by symmetry of identity that means the world equals nothing, okay, and to a Buddhist the world is just a whole lot of nothing, it's a big uh, cosmic vacuity. And uh, you know, we think there's a lot of something out there, but that's because we're enslaved by our desires. If we let our desires kind of melt away, uh, we'll see the world for what it truly is, a vacuity, nothingness, and we'll slip into this happy state of nirvana, which has been defined as having just enough life to enjoy being
0: dead. Okay, so that's it. And takes Krauss's idea to task via Stephen Hawking, then touches on some other stuff that we haven't even ventured into, including the currently popular physics concept of the multiverse. What a scientific law is. And if you don't believe me on this,
19: uh, you listen to Stephen Hawking, who himself put forward a model of the cosmos that was self-contained, didn't require any outside cause, any creator. And after proposing this, Hawking admitted that he was still puzzled. I mean, these, you know, these are just, this model is just equations. What breathes fire into the, into the equations and creates a world for them to describe? He was puzzled by this. So equations themselves can't do the magic, can't resolve the puzzle of existence. And besides, even if the laws could do that, why this set of laws why quantum field theory that describes a universe with a certain number of forces and particles and so forth why not a completely different set of laws there are you know many many mathematically consistent sets of laws why not no laws at all why not sheer nothingness so this is a problem you know believe it or not that reflective physicists really think a lot about and at this point they tend to go metaphysical say well maybe the set of laws that describe our universe it's just one set of laws and it describes one part of reality, but maybe every consistent set of laws describes another part of reality. And in fact, all possible physical worlds really exist. They're all out there. We just see a little tiny part of reality that's described by the laws of quantum field theory, but there are many, many other worlds, parts of reality that are described by vastly different theories that are different from ours in ways we can't imagine that are, you know, inconceivably exotic. Steven Weinberg, the father of the Standard Model of Particle Physics, has actually flirted with this idea himself, that all possible realities actually exist. Uh, Also, a a younger physicist, Max Tegmark, who believes that, that all mathematical structures exist, and mathematical existence is the same thing as physical existence, so we have this vastly rich multiverse that encompasses every logical possibility.
0: His fascinating conclusion, after considering many possibilities in interviews with various luminaries, is that, while extreme realities might require an explanation, perhaps more mediocre realities, those that are neither perfect nor totally depraved, actually don't. In other words, ours may simply be the most pedestrian of all of the possibilities for how things could have turned out. Also, we kind of like his wrap-up.
19: So what kind of reality do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a special reality? What if we were living in the most elegant possible reality? What, imagine the existential pressure on us to live up to that, you know, to be elegant, not to pull down the tone of it. Or what if we were living in the fullest possible reality? Well, then our existence would be guaranteed because every possible thing Exists in that reality, but our choices would be meaningless. You know if I if I really struggle morally and agonize, and I I Decide to do the right thing it does what difference does it make because there are infinite number of versions of me also doing the right thing and an infinite number doing the wrong thing So my choices are meaningless. So we don't want to live in that special reality and As for the special reality of nothingness, I mean we wouldn't be having this conversation living in a generic reality that's mediocre. You know, there are nasty bits and nice bits, and we can make the nice bits bigger and the nasty bits smaller, and that gives us a kind of purpose in life. You know, the universe is absurd, but we can still construct a purpose, and that's a pretty good one. And the, the overall medi- mediocrity of reality kind of resonates nicely with the mediocrity we all feel in the core of our being. And I know you feel it. I mean, you, I know you all, you're all special, but you're still kind of secretly mediocre, don't you think?
0: Um, <laughs> Remember that guy we introduced back during the philosophy section, Jim Bagot, who wrote a book called A Beginner's Guide to Reality? Well, after tracing all the options for understanding that reality through the philosophy and science we just covered, along with social construction and a bunch of other stuff we left out, he notes that anyone who's depending on science for solid answers, having grown weary of the philosophers, is in for a bit of a shock.
4: What have we got? We have wave shadows and particle shadows. We have spooky action at a distance between entangled quantum objects. We have space built from hypothetical loops in a universe without time. We have hypothetical vibrating strings in an N11-dimensional space-time.
0: We didn't have time to get to string theory, but who doggy is that a weird one.
4: We have a universe that might be a three-dimensional membrane, in which there might be seven extra dimensions hidden in your hair. So, what is real? We have to admit, we don't know.
0: So the best thinkers and our headiest disciplines don't have a great handle, even after thousands of years and indescribable advancements in any number of fields of endeavor, on what exactly reality is when we get down to brass tacks. Which, of course, and inevitably, means that the space for ideas that might explain why we happen to be what we are, where, and when we are, is still pretty wide open. On the more serious side, that has led to some very interesting thought experiments, including one posed in 2003 by a philosopher named Nick Bostrom.
4: We know we've recommended a bunch of additional reading in this episode, but we'd be remiss if we didn't mention another book by Bostrom that, in spite of its rather anodyne title, that is, Superintelligence, is unquestionably the most pants-shittingly terrifying book we've read in the last 10 years or so. It's about artificial intelligence. And if you don't read it, please at least peruse the two super long posts on the excellent blog, Wait But Why, that deal with many of the book's implications. Show notes of...
0: Bostrom's simulation theory is essentially this. As is clear to anyone with an Xbox and a copy of Red Dead Redemption 2, humans seem to like the idea of simulating human history via computers. And over the past few decades, the computing power that we can devote to this pursuit has grown exponentially, going from Pong to photorealistic 3D open worlds. Given this initial condition, Bostrom draws these pretty reasonable conclusions. Either civilizations that reach or exceed our level of complexity inevitably die out for some reason, Yeesh. Or civilizations that exceed our current level of complexity decide for some reason to stop pursuing what Bostrom calls ancestor simulations.
4: That is, Red Dead or The Matrix or future tech VR and steroids.
0: Or finally, that almost all beings having human-like experiences such as ours are probably existing in one of these extremely complex simulations. That includes us.
4: The fuck you say?
0: I know, sounds super weird, but I invite you to read through those propositions and find the hole in them. I sure can't. And if Bostrom's right, then it's far more likely that we're in a simulation than in what we might call base reality. Naturally, other far less careful thinkers have built this idea out with an absurd degree of specificity. One typically overconfident tome, Simulation Theory Explained, a 37-minute audiobook by Austin Waters, creates an alphabetical series of supposedly inevitable conclusions that will arise from our probably simulated existences.
4: I. Time, at some point, will cease to exist. J. Scientists, teachers, astronomers, management gurus, etc., who did exceptionally well on this planet, will be entrusted with greater responsibilities to manage the affairs of the other worlds. K. It appears from lack of new initiatives, ideas, artistic creations, and discoveries, then most probably it's a wrap-up time, what we know as end of time.
0: Cool story, bro. But there are more responsible people who are interested in how we could tell whether the reality we experience is actually a complex simulation. This list includes physicist S. James Gates Jr., who has some interesting things to say in conversation with the aforementioned Neil deGrasse Tyson about physics theories and computer code.
17: And what I've come to understand is that there are these incredible pictures that contain all the information of a set of equations that are related to string theory. And it's even more bizarre than that because when you then try to understand these pictures, you find out that buried in them are computer codes just like the type that you find in a browser when you go surf the web. You're saying your (laughs) attempt to understand the fundamental operations of nature leads you to a set of equations that are indistinguishable from the equations that drive search engines and browsers yeah, on our computers. That is correct. So the Wait, wait. I'm still Wait. I have to just be silent from here. <laughs> so you're saying as you dig deeper you find computer code writ in the fabric of the cosmos into the equations that we want to use to describe the cosmos. Yes. Computer code. Computer code, strings of bits of ones and zeros. It's not just sort of resembles computer code, you're saying it is computer code. It's not even just is computer code, it's a special kind of computer code that was invented by a scientist named Claude Shannon in the 1940s. That's what we find very, very deeply inside the equations that occur in string theory and in general in systems that we call, say are supersymmetric.
7: We
0: will stipulate that Professor Gates' conclusions are controversial, but the general simulation theory is popular with some other super smart folks. Most notably, Tesla Man.
10: Have you thought about this in a lot? Are we... In remember like the, the, the strongest argument for, the, for us being in a simulation, probably being in a simulation, I think is the following. Now, 40 years later, we have photorealistic 3D simulations with millions of people playing simultaneously, and it's getting better every year. And soon we'll have you know, virtual reality, augmented reality. Um, if you assume any rate of improvement at all, um, then the games will become indistinguishable from reality. Just indistinguishable. Um, even if that rate of advancement drops by 1,000 from what it is right now, um, then you just say, OK, well, we'll let's imagine it's 10,000 years in the future. Uh, which is nothing in the evolutionary scale. So given that we're clearly on a trajectory to have games that are indistinguishable from reality, and those games could be played on any set-top box or on a PC or whatever, and there would probably be you know, billions of such computers or set-top boxes, it would seem to follow that the odds that we're in base reality is one in billions. This, that seems to be... Like clearly, to what it suggests. Right. And, and
20: actually:
0: You'd be right to anticipate a discussion of the matrix at this point, but we're saving that for next time. Instead, we'll note that with all this heady philosophizing and how difficult to understand our reality is, it's basically inevitable that bullshit artists are going to take advantage of the situation and create pretty sounding nothings out of the ongoing mystery of existence. And if unwarranted confidence in horseshit explanations could be incarnated in human form, it's safe to say, that form would be Deepak Chopra.
4: We mentioned him in our Dangerous Oprah questioning segment last time, but it's when he gets deep into combining quantum mechanics with his ridiculous gloss on Eastern philosophy that his verbal turds truly waft and effluviate like a satanic Yankee candle.
0: The following conversation, which he has the nerve to call your daily dose of wisdom, is pure distilled woo-woo. He and his interviewee, while touching on a number of our topics, somehow managed to mangle them so badly that even we know it's bullshit of the purest race arena. It's
21: very dear to my heart, and that is non-locality. So, what's non-locality?
5: Well, in quantum physics, they talk about this communication between isolated particles. <laughs> no! And that they somehow are able to communicate non-locally. Or at a distance and beyond space and time? No. So the question is, does that apply beyond the level of subatomic particles? Can we begin to think about non-locality in terms of our relationships? Uh, Can we think about consciousness as something that transcends our brain, our body, and may have the capacity to reach out and connect with another person at a distance? Obviously
4: not. Actually, we did an
21: experiment together, too.
5: So the experiment that we did together was looking at uh, you as the sender looking at the image of somebody via closed circuit television. That person's physiology was being monitored and we were actually able to measure the correlation between your intention and this kind of non-local exchange of information measured by the physiological activity of the distant person. The study seems actually to produce a stronger effect. Than things like the prevention of second heart attacks by taking aspirin.
4: Jesus, that's clearly unwarranted.
21: My take is that actually there's no such thing as distance in space time to begin with. That our perception is a snapshot of the activity of the universe. And in taking the snapshot, we mistake the snapshot for the reality. And then we try to figure out, you know, how's this intention here? having an effect there when, in fact, in the totality, it's one gigantic non-local activity interacting with itself. So, you know, when I send the intention there, actually I'm sending an intention to myself, (laughs) that myself is the whole activity Mm -hmm. instead of the snapshot of the activity.
5: Somebody pour me a scotch. Um, At the Institute of Neurotic Sciences, we uh, did an experiment looking at Uh, people, we called it the love study, Mm -hmm. and we recruited couples, one of whom had cancer. We took the healthy partner through a compassionate intention training program and then afterward brought them into the lab to look at this level of interconnectedness and could the healing powers of love transcend space and time. And we in fact found that. We found highly statistically significant correlations when the healthy partner was sending love to their, their partner who happened to be in a 2,000 pound electromagnetically shielded room, very well controlled circumstances. And so it does provide a kind of proof of principle for this interconnected, non-local embeddedness of each of us in something that's bigger than ourselves.
21: And therefore, we shouldn't even be calling these psychic abilities because they're in fact an activity in a single system And that system is already beyond space and time. And perceptual experience is what's creating space and time.
4: Fucking psychic healing?
0: We want you to understand we are shortening our lives from the stress of listening to and editing this crap for your delectation. Totally worth it, though. Deepak only scratches the surface of the unwarranted conclusions that motivated individuals have come to based on the mysteries that reality still presents us with. This brings us to the most conspiracy-ish of the mostly non-conspiracy topics we're covering this time, the Mandela Effect.
16: The Mandela Effect is a phrase people use to describe their own powerful memories that don't seem to match our recorded history. Two things seem to make those memories powerful. One is how certain the individual is that the memory is genuine and correct. The other thing is the consistency of those memories across a wide range of people who otherwise seem to have no connections, personal or geographical.
0: The person you just heard briefly introducing the concept is none other than Fiona Broom, the individual most often credited with identifying this quote-unquote effect. But why is it the Mandela effect? Here's a quick synopsis.
20: The Mandela Effect is named after Nelson Mandela. Released in 1990, he became the first president of South Africa, electively serving only one term before stepping down to focus on fighting HIV AIDS and poverty in 1994. That fight continued until he passed away on December 5th, 2013, but Is that what you remember? If you're like many people, you may recall stories of Mandela dying while still in prison in the 1980s, while others believe that the year of his death was 1991. But if that were the case, how could he have become president? This is merely one example of how alternate universes may have collided or even merged with our own. To rephrase this general
0: idea charitably, There are a significant number of people across the world who all remember events, names, and even geographic locations as being different than they actually are. These shared misapprehensions in turn have spawned ideas that the history of the world may be changing retroactively in subtle ways, unbeknownst to the population at large, and that these Mandela Effect experiencers' memories are the only record of how the world was before the mysterious forces altered it.
4: Less charitable version? People are clearly misremembering events, both significant and trivial, and all somehow decided that this is super-duper important and evidence of a sinister plot.
0: Man, we love sinister plot accusations. So, it's time to bring on the crazy quotes. Let's start with effect researcher and self-described freedom fighter for truth, Stasha Erickson, and her scholarly work in The Mandela Effect. Everything is changing.
4: The world is changing, and there is proof that reality has been manipulated. The most noticeable change to our reality seems to be the blatant manipulation of our history. The Mandela effect itself is a symptom that reality, as we know it, has changed. Not just metaphorically transformed, but physically.
0: What launched our freedom fighter on her important quest? It happened when she realized that her favorite childhood peanut butter's name had inexplicably been altered.
4: It had?
0: Of course not. But that didn't stop her from writing to the company and demanding to know when Jiffy had changed its name to Jiff. When they politely replied that the brand had always been Jiff, and that it seemed most likely she was confusing their product with the popular Jiffy brand of cornbread mix, she reacted as any other sensible adult would, and decided this was clear evidence that those Jiff bastards were in on the whole plot.
4: I felt that they knew exactly what was going on, and therefore they were so quick to respond and defend their story. How many large corporations will reply to an email inquiry within hours? It almost seems as though they had a pre-written response handy for all the Mandela-infected individuals who tried to call them out on this change. While I do not have any proof of this yet, I feel that we will accomplish this task with the publishing of this book.
0: Well, obviously. Other devotees have similarly strong stories. Linda Fitak's Cat Disappeared, for example. Which might not seem super relevant, but her two other cats were acting weird and looking at a spot under the dining room table. We'll let her take up this gripping tale here, from her screed, The Mandela Effect, Confabulation or Fact?
4: It was not until the next day in the evening that I found him trembling by the dining room table. He had scratches on his nose. He's forgotten the incident now, but I believe that he went through a portal to another universe. The other cats could sense it, which is why they gathered around that one area under the table. I think there was a small opening that he was trying to climb through, which would explain the scratches on his nose. What that other universe was like, we do not know. But whatever it was, it seriously frightened him.
0: You know, it would be just like this show to dismiss this as the blithering nonsense of the deranged. But having just reviewed all the weirdness about what we don't know about reality, I'm still going to make fun of it because it's fucking stupid. It's not just authors of Kindle Unlimited books who are obsessed with this horseshit. Credulous YouTubers are also on the case.
22: And today I'm going to be doing kind of an installment of a Mandela Effect video.
3: I know Shane Dawson is shook. Just kidding, I will never be him. But I found these ones kind of recently, and I was very just like taken aback. I am a total believer in the Mandela Effect. I'm not even going to explain it because I'm sure you guys know what it is, and if you don't, you can just like Google it
0: or watch like any other YouTuber, so... I just thought I would share some of these with you guys. Have you ever had a
20: memory of something so strong that you swear it to be true? What happens when hundreds or even thousands of other people share the same memory, only to discover that it never actually happened? Here are the 10 freakiest examples of the Mandela Effect.
15: Somewhere deep in bear country lives the Bernstein Bear family. (laughs) The Bernstein Bear.
0: Small bit of news just in. Parallel universes exist and we're living in a different one than we did in our childhoods. I don't know if you guys heard, but apparently at some point in the last decade or so,
11: a large number of us got shifted to a parallel universe and the Berenstein Bears proved that. I'm Gabe Ho writer and do parallel universes exist? Sure. But are some of us actually from a parallel universe
6: and somehow got shifted into this one? That's a much bigger question. Let's find out. This is hashtag the Mandela in. effect,
20: a freaky phenomenon causing the collective misremembering of a fact or event. Tens of thousands of people or in some cases more, all claim to have a memory of something that never actually occurred. What could cause such a phenomena? Have we crossed into an alternate reality? Nobody knows, but the following examples are some of the most famous going on right now.
0: Okay, so aside from undead South African heroes, peanut butter, and disappearing cats, what other things do people believe have been changed by mysterious nefarious forces? Thankfully, you can visit MandelaEffect.com and find an exhaustive and truly exhausting list. A few random examples.
4: Didn't Curious George have a tail at one time? Weren't the Bernstein Bears originally called the Berenstein Bears? In that famous portrait of Henry VIII, isn't he holding a turkey leg? Didn't Betty White die a long time ago? Didn't the Tiananmen Square tank guy get run over by a tank on TV? Didn't the events of 9-11 actually occur on 9-10? Was New Zealand at one time closer to Australia than it is now?
0: To be clear, the answer to each of the preceding is no. And we think you get the gist, but we have to tack on a personal favorite.
4: Weren't there 51 or 52 U.S. states at one time?
0: Amusingly, many sensible people believe this one arises from the fact that U.S. territories are frequently featured in little boxes surrounding the continental U.S. on maps, along with Alaska and Hawaii. Thus, the additional one or two states that these people have added in their minds. This next may be the best one, though. Once again, compliments of Stasha Erickson.
4: I am currently in the process of editing a chapter regarding the Mandela effects that have arisen in our atmosphere recently. The sun seems to appear artificial in nature. It is almost too bright, like an oversized flashlight of some sort.
0: My god, they got to the sun! Damn you all-powerful conspiracists. As amusing as it is to see people try to turn their faulty memories into a conviction that they alone remember the true timeline, it's still more fun to read and hear their theories about how this state of affairs came into being. If you predicted they'd somehow blame it on quantum mechanics, you win
22: a prize. Is the European Organization of Nuclear Research, or as it's better known, CERN responsible for the Mandela Effect? It has been a theory put forward by many that are looking for a possible explanation for the many changes they are certain have occurred in their reality. The Large Hadron Collider, or LHC for short, which is operated by CERN, is the single largest and debatably the most powerful machine ever created by humanity. The particle accelerator became operational in 2010. In fact, at the time there was widespread fear that the tremendous energy of 7 tera-electrovolts, it is also this tremendous amount of energy needed for these experiments, that many are theorizing might be corroding the very fabric of our universe, and unintentionally, creating reality-altering side effects such as the Mandela Effect. Some conspiracy theories have gone as far as saying they believe that the physicists at CERN know about the side effects these experiments these are causing. These guys constant. are
6: helping to learn how to observe these multiple dimensions. And if they can, you know, all work together and finally perfect it, and if CERN is doing something with these collisions, perhaps they could see into the spiritual realm. Does this have anything to do with the Mandela Effect? You know, and, and I'm, I'm still curious about that topic. I talked about it a few times. I've went actually back and forth on it. Um, I don't think the Bible's been changed, but um, there are a lot of things that are very strange. matter of fact, there was just one the other day. I, I, I could swear Betty White was dead and apparently she's not dead, okay? She oh, was on, the linear Fox, accelerator was on Fox.
23: already has the ability to generate power from collisions that is a thousand times greater than the twenty seven kilometer ring, main ring itself. Now they're going to join both machines and therefore the power that will be realized from the collisions will be in an order and I'll put it out here because we can define it later, but they're going to reach what is called 20 peta electron volts in my view of physics and coming from a Christian perspective and having the glasses, as I call it, the glasses of the Holy Spirit to give me that discernment. I have seen the occulted or more profanely the satanic side of science, specifically what's going on at CERN. And let's go back to the location of the machine. It's not only on the border of two countries. It's not only 300 feet underground, but it is purposefully located at the ancient Roman and Greek temple site to Apollo, Apollyon, Abaddon, the destroyer.
15: Yeah.
23: It is literally sitting over the gates to hell,
15: Unbelievable.
23: to the abyss. And this technology provides the key to the abyss, the turning of that lock and the releasing of the demonic entities trapped within the abyss and goes right to Revelation one. That's the purpose of the machine. And
12: certainly, nine eleven now is is associated with destruction. And the Shiva is the goddess of destruction. Cern seems to worship the the god of destruction or goddess of destruction or Satan. Uh, There's if you don't know anything about their connection to Satanism, it's almost blatant. It's it's so obvious how much she's the Cern has got to do with that. And then. Their awareness that they are being at least connected to the Mandela effect is obvious too. There's, there's with zero doubt that they're aware that they are being connected with the Mandela effect. And even a cartoon, you know all this stuff right after they open in 2008, it makes me wonder if they discovered something because in 2010, you start having like cartoons like Steingate, which when you think of Bernstein Berenst- Bears or Stein, you know that the pronunciation can be the same. One of the biggest, I think, for Mandela effects, Steingate is all about this CERN messing with time and realities and all that. That's just amazing. It makes me wonder if they they accidentally stumbled across this or if they knew they were going to do it. I'm really grateful when I can see something. And you know what? I also pray for people who can't handle it, for people who are it's just going to destroy their life. I pray that they not see it because I don't want to see their life go down, you know, just go down in flames because they can't handle it.
0: Do you hear how they went from worrying about the Large Hadron Collider at CERN causing the Mandela Effect, and then ended up deciding that said collider is actually opening a portal to hell? Isn't it delicious? God, I love my job. Guess what? There's some internecine fighting between the Mandela wackos and religious wackos. Grab the popcorn.
17: The Mandela Effect is a concept associated with Fiona Broom a researcher and paranormal consultant. In other words, she is connected to the dark underworld and demonic consultations and communication with the dead. Another form of witchcraft or mind manipulation through dark forces. They themselves show all of the attributes of a person that has allowed witches and warlocks to get into their heads. If they can convince you that these concepts and winds of doctrine deserves your attention, then they have successfully indoctrinated you with the same manipulations that have taken control over their minds.
0: So, God hates Fiona. Great. But it gets better. See, one of the things the Mandela Whackjobs think has been changed is the Bible. Back to Stasha Erickson's breathless tone.
4: Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? The most commonly spoken prayer at both funerals and Sundays in church is causing an enormous amount of controversy and confusion. When I spoke the Lord's Prayer as a child, I always remember it saying, forgive us our trespasses. Now it says, forgive us our debts. Since when did money or debt have anything to do with forgiveness?
0: We hope you non-Christian straniacs will pardon this brief digression into sectarian vocabulary, but it's true. The word debts is now used in the Lord's Prayer in place of the word trespasses. Wait, did I say in place of? I meant that different denominations use different words, and it's been that way at least since the Catholic Church started saying the Mass in English a few decades ago. Catholic Church goes trespass, but Pop Jesuits Presbyterian has long used the term debts.
4: Also, as an archaic version of the word debts, to mean wrongs we have committed against others, Stasha, it is not actually about money.
0: Incidentally, she could have clarified this with a single trip to Wikipedia or even a brief glance at any of the grillions of different Bible-related sites with explanations of the fact. Getting back to the topic, though, fundies are particularly angered by the suggestion that the mysterious, totally explainable effect may have potentially changed something in said Bible.
13: Today I'm going to talk about the Mandela Effect. I've been getting a lot of emails and even phone calls from people asking me, please make a video about this. Many of them say that CERN is involved and is actually manipulating time or somehow accessing alternative realities. And that through this, they are able to actually change the way things used to be and even changing the Bible from what it actually used to say. Is this true? And verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. God has a word that's settled. So the settled word, can it be changed? Is the word of God changed if it is settled? Psalms 119, 160, we read, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. So thy word is true from the beginning. Well, Psalms 12, 6, and 7 say, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So the word of God says that God's words are settled, true, pure, purified, and preserved if god's words are settled true pure purified and preserved then how can satan change them if cern can change the words of god in the king james bible then god's words are not settled true pure purified and preserved as we just read and by the way forever
0: so delicious we're about to move on but we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that while the Mandela Effect is, of course, insane, this guy's defense against the accusations by the Mandela Effect believers is even dumber, and a textbook example of what the phrase begging the question is actually supposed to mean.
4: To quickly recap his argument, some people say the Mandela Effect has changed the Bible. Is that possible? No. How do we know? The Bible, which you'll recall is the thing in question, says it can't be changed.
0: While there are a huge number of textual and historical reasons to contest his claims about the Bible's unchangeability, all we have to note for our example here is that he's using the text whose changeability is in question to confirm that that can't have happened because that potentially changeable text says, in the text, that said text can't be changed. This is literally the textbook, excuse me, definition of begging the question. So the next time some dumb fuck in your office says something like, so this begs the question, where should we go for lunch? You can revel in your silent superiority at his mistake. The same way we do.
4: Someone please get this man a date.
0: On the bright side, one of the pro-Mandela authors appears to have re-released his original Kindle Unlimited book in a deluxe edition, so that he can explain his later realization that it's much more likely that he and every other believer is simply making way too much out of some pretty commonplace misremembering than it is that the whole of reality is being secretly edited.
4: And that's why we give Jay Wheeler and the deluxe edition of Alternate Memories, The Mandela Effect our first-ever paranoid Strain Reformed Conspiracist of the Year award. See you on the red carpet.
0: One final thought on this. What in the name of Flarn makes these people think that should some sort of subtle change propagate throughout the universe, changing the warp and weft of history, that the atoms in their brains would somehow be uniquely immune to said change? A quick mention of two other reality-questioning, conspiracist nonsense ideas. The first is the super-weird concept dreamed up on incredibly scanty evidence by some academics over the past few decades that several centuries were added to the calendar during the Middle Ages. We'll excerpt the Excellent Stuff They Don't Want You To Know video series to explain this one.
7: Some researchers think the calendar as we know it is off by as much as three centuries. That somewhere along the line we became victims of phantom time. To these investigators, the years between about 600 to 900 AD never actually happened. Researchers like Erebediljig and Hans Ulrich Niemitz think this modern age may actually be in the 1700s rather than the 21st century. According to these researchers, the evidence is overwhelming. Let's take a closer look. Even considering we might be 300 years in the past, 600 AD was a long, long time ago. As a result, physical evidence is hard to come by. To the advocates of phantom time, this evidence is incongruous, unconvincing, and most likely from a different era. They claim the buildings from 600 to 900 AD don't match their contemporaries. Various prominent historical figures, chief among these being Charlemagne, are said to have been assigned to the wrong time period or made up entirely. The theorists also believe that inefficiencies of dendrochronology, the science of measuring time through tree rings, attributed to this phantom time. To these theorists, the big question isn't if this happened, it's why. Did Otto II conspire to place his reign in the year 1000, a more auspicious time than the 700s? Is Constantine VII's brutal revision of Byzantine history to blame? Or could it all be an accident? Most of the world does not believe there's enough evidence to support the phantom time hypothesis. But what if these theorists are right? Have we been fooled? Have we accidentally made up centuries worth of fiction and confused it with fact? Mainstream science refuses to accept the hypothesis, and most scientists dismiss it entirely. Why? Is it a load of paranoid claptrap? Or is there something they don't want you to know? Weird. But not even close to the
0: weirdness of our final entry here. It's a name that strikes fear into the hearts of anyone who's hung out in the stranger parts of the internet over the past couple of decades. I give you...
24: TimeCube. TimeCube. In online circles, the name TimeCube has become synonymous with incomprehensibility, poor web design, and absurd conspiracy theories. Most people discover it after sarcastic remarks in forums and investigating for themselves, though even after seeing it, the subject remains elusive and confusing. The website is mostly one massive page consisting of aggressive prose detailing a theory, claiming that time is cubic, as well as proclaiming the supreme intellect of its creator while insulting everyone else. Those who attempt to describe the theory for the more befuddled readers often find themselves at a loss. The material on this first recorded page declares in large red lettering, Earth has four simultaneous days within one rotation. Losing three days in each Earth rotation has retarded your mentality to stupid and an education of evil. You do not have the mind or education to envision nature's time cube. The rest of the website is laid out vertically, divided into sections that each use unique formatting. The next section states in all capital letters that, quote, 3 equator 4 corner Earth time rotates 96 hours as a simultaneous 4 day cube. You were taught that the Earth has only 1 equator as if the Earth was flat. You were taught ignorance. Creation has 2 sex poles and 4 corner races of humans. God is cornered as a queer. This second section is signed as Jean Ray, cubic. Just beneath this, he attempts to explain his theory with more specificity. Quote, if Earth stood still, it would have midday, midnight, sun up, and sun down as four corners. Each rotation of Earth has four mid-days, four mid-nights, four sun-ups, and four sun-downs. The 16 space-times demonstrates cube-proof of four full days simultaneously on Earth within one rotation. The academia-created one-day Greenwich time is bastardly queer and dooms future youth and nature to a hell. Ignorance of four-day harmonic cubic nature indicts humans as unfit to live on this Earth.
0: At one point, this concept and its website represented the weirdest scientific-sounding-ish drivel the web had to offer. While its sole progenitor
4: and the only person who seems ever to have understood what the hell it was about
0: has died, we fortunately have a recording of lectures he gave to bemused and highly amused students explaining how he completely reinvented the concept of time or something damned if we can figure it out
25: hello fellow cubics you didn't know that you were born a cubic but you've been taught singularity this is a, a, a clear plastic cube it represents time it's got the earth in it and when the sun shines on one corner it creates an office of midnight those are the two majors and uh where they join it creates the two minors of sunup sundown the midday at the, Midnight to midday is twenty four hour day. Sundown is a twenty four hour day. midnight's a twenty four hour day, and sunup a twenty four hour day. and the, uh, the the midday is like a light race day, sundown is Asian midnight black, sunup Indian. And it's, its each one of these rotates to its own separate twenty four hour day. That's simple math. How come people can't understand that. That's no big deal. i've got I get death threats from NASA. They say you're rocking the boat. So people can't handle it, but they can't handle it because they've never been allowed to know it. And the, I've got NASA pictures that show a ring of molten lava around the equator of a planet. Look at it closely. The top part of the lava is moving in the direction, one direction. The bottom part is moving in the opposite direction. That's how planets are created. You can even see the, like the Atlantic Ocean where you've got part half coming and half of it going. Now, if you, uh, the Earth is not an entity. Because it has two opposite poles, it rotate in different directions. It cancels out. All humans exist between the two opposites of femininity and masculinity, and that's how we exist as opposites. As an entity, they cancel out. We don't even exist. The whole universe is 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 uh, uh It's kind of like the the opposite sexes, the opposite hemispheres. That's what that's that's how all existence is, and. You can put, uh, put a human head in an animal body, in, in a tiger, and it, it, uh, it has to act like the tiger form. If you put a god in a human form, he's gonna have to act like the god. He has a limitation of the, of the figure. And the uh, evolution, if uh, where would it affect the family? The, you can see the uh, uh, a, a child, like you can plant a seed and it grow to a tree, but you can't do it with a child. The child has to be born, and so uh, you can't change the genetics on the child that's being born. So actually,
0: and around the final bend here, but after the preceding dipshittery, we wanted to offer another more reasonable perspective on the idea that all of reality is, in a sense, a conspiracy. In this case, there are no conspirators, though, just that same elusive sense of what is and what isn't that we've been chasing all episode. together a few loosely related threads here, but trust us, we have a good reason, and we'll reveal it in due time. To pick a place to start, let's briefly discuss the hugely influential horror author H.P. Lovecraft. He is, in his own way, one of the most important popular writers of the 20th century, the creator of such legendary monstrosities as Cthulhu, the Great Sleeper, Yog sothoth and shub Niggurath, the Goat with a Thousand Young. Lovecraft didn't go for teen-slaughtering maniacs or even supernatural monsters of human dimensions. Instead, his work was centered on the horror that could arise from human characters encountering beings far larger, older, and more powerful than mankind. Eldritch monstrosities whose very existence seems to mock any pretense that our kind might make to meaning or importance in the universe. Quoting directly from his Call of Cthulhu,
4: We live on a placid island of ignorance, in the midst of black seas of infinity. And it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, has hitherto harmed us little. But some day, the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying visas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age.
0: Lovecraft, it turns out, was an atheist materialist.
4: And, we should probably note, a very disturbingly racist motherfucker, even for his time.
0: And his concepts of horror arose directly from his presumption of the total indifference of the universe to all human preferences, achievements, or even morality. His stories personified the meaninglessness of the universe that we find ourselves in by creating elder gods, creatures whose presence could drive humans mad, beings who, at most, saw humans as fleas on their backs. But worse, there was always the intimation that this universe, this planet, was meant for them, not for us. So why do we bring up Mr. Scary Racist? Mostly because in recent years there have been some other interesting explorations of the idea that our investigations of reality and our search for meaning will inevitably lead us to ever more dire realizations about exactly how little rationality, sense, or place for humanity there is in the universe. For example, do you remember season one of True Detective? Sure, the subsequent editions have been hit...
4: Season 3. ...or miss... Season 2.
0: But count us among those who think that the first Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson iteration is one of the apices of our current Age of Prestige TV. And certainly of all of the memorable things about that remarkable series, the most arresting was the deadpan, flinty-eyed, misanthropic philosophizing that Detective Rust Cole sprinkled throughout eight episodes.
2: Look, I'd consider myself a realist, but in philosophical terms, I'm what's called a pessimist. I think human consciousness is a tragic misstep in evolution. We became too self-aware. Nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. Hmm, that sounds god-fucking-awful, Russ. We are things that labor under the illusion of having a self. This accretion of sensory experience and feeling. Programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody. When in fact everybody's nobody. I think the honorable thing for our species to do is deny our programming. Stop reproducing. Walk hand in hand into extinction. One last midnight, brothers and sisters opting out of a raw deal.
25: So,
2: what's the point of getting out of bed in the morning? I tell myself I bear witness. The real answer is that it's obviously my programming. And I lack the constitution for suicide.
0: Show creator Nick Pizzolatto mentioned a number of texts that were an influence on his creation of the season and the perspective of its most memorable character. But one of the biggest influences was a book by Eugene Thacker called In the Dust of This Planet, The Horror of Philosophy. Volume 1. Yes, the Paranoid Strain Orchestra Maniacs have a theme song. Of course. At least one podcast has already made quite a meal of this book, and its association with not only True Detective, but also Beyoncé and Jay-Z. It's a pretty weird story, and you should check it out on Radiolab. Show Notes The book is an attempt to discuss the concepts behind philosophical pessimism in the context of the genre of horror.
4: That's a pretty finely honed book proposal, no?
0: You'd think so. But there's another book we read for this episode on the very same topic. And Be Still Our Hearts, that one's by Thomas Ligotti, and it's called The Conspiracy Against the Human Race. (laughs) No, no, I don't think we should sound the justified conspiracy alarm yet but let's give our authors a chance to lay out their tightly aligned cases. What's the big idea? First, we'll hear from Thacker.
4: The view of cosmic pessimism is a strange mysticism of the world without us, a hermeticism of the abyss, and noumenal occultism. It is a difficult thought of the world as absolutely unhuman, and indifferent to the hopes, desires, and struggles of human individuals and groups.
0: Interesting, if kind of a downer. Mr. Lugati?
4: We want there to be more than that, or to think that there is. This is a tragedy. Consciousness has forced us into the paradoxical position of striving to be unself-conscious of what we are, hunks of spoiling flesh on disintegrating bones.
0: Another laugh riot. But hopefully you can hear the clear echoes of Rust Cole's lines in these excerpts. The general idea behind each book is fundamentally aligned with the fictional detective's view that consciousness, which in this worldview evolved without the mandate or oversight of a benevolent deity, was the worst thing that could have happened to the human species and is in fact the cause of most of our other problems, because we have knowledge of our own mortality, as well as what these gents
4: and, to be fair, the entire intellectual history of Maya, as we discussed earlier,
0: would characterize as the illusion of a self. We are constantly damned to lives of overwhelming suffering and spiritual dislocation, which we hide from ourselves through the trappings of a normal life, work, hobbies, family, podcasts and which we tend to give tentative expression to only through the creation and consumption of works of horror.
4: Fuck me, that's bleak.
0: It sure is, but it's also a conspiracy, if you'll accept Mr. Lugati's formulation, that can't be dismissed out of hand. It doesn't call for a mysterious band of all-powerful sociopaths to rearrange the world in the name of hoarding power and spreading misery. Instead, it's just the idea that as conscious beings, we've been dealt the shittiest possible hand. Of all the universes, we had to exist in the one that would blindly, meaninglessly vomit up self-awareness at the end of an endless trial-and-error process of evolution, but then that would be able to offer no essential meaning or comfort to those conscious beings. Naturally, both of these guys are big fans of Lovecraft, and his Elder Gods, whose indifference to humanity is one of their most salient traits. Each author also does a great job tracing this strain of philosophical pessimism through literature and film, with both offering a special appreciation of Schopenhauer, the philosopher of pessimism we discussed earlier in our philosophy section. Referring to Schopenhauer as a sort of philosophical fellow-traveler with Lovecraft, Thacker notes,
4: Schopenhauer says, We have to challenge the most basic premises of philosophy. We have to entertain the possibility that there is no reason for something existing, or that the split between subject and object is only our name for something equally accidental, which we call knowledge. Or, an even more difficult thought, that while there may be some order to the self and the cosmos, to the microcosm and macrocosm, it is an order that is absolutely indifferent to our existence, and of which we can only have a negative awareness. And Legati. Here, then, is a signature motif of the pessimistic imagination that Schopenhauer made discernible. Behind the scenes of life, there is something pernicious that makes a nightmare of our world.
0: Plus, L-Dog provides a nice pro-Schopenhauer swipe at the tortured college-age misanthropes poster boy for intense negative philosophy.
4: Although both Schopenhauer and Nietzsche spoke only to an audience of atheists, Schopenhauer erred, from a public relations stance, by not according human beings any special status among the world of things organic and inorganic, or trucking in any meaning to our existence.
0: Meow. The books do, of course, focus on somewhat divergent themes. Thacker's idea is to codify a new approach to horror of, as he puts it, the world without us, the planet, as opposed to the world or the earth, which he labels world for us and world in itself, respectively.
4: Yes, we know this sounds a lot like Kant, but trust us, it's a lot more readable.
0: Thus Lovecraft and his indifferent, enormous ancient horrors definitely fit the bill. But his book has a much broader thesis, asking us to consider the world we inhabit from a fairly uncommon perspective, that of humans' complete inconsequence.
4: Cosmic pessimism's limit thought is the idea of absolute nothingness, unconsciously represented in many popular media images of nuclear war, natural disasters, global pandemics, and the cataclysmic effects of climate change.
0: Legati's effort is focused more on the condition of being human in this indifferent cosmos and how, in his formulation, most of human activity is an elaborate effort to deceive ourselves about our condition.
4: Non-human occupants of this planet are unaware of death, but we are susceptible to startling and dreadful thoughts, and we need some fabulous illusions to take our minds off them. For us, then, life is a confidence trick we must run on ourselves— hoping we do not catch on to any monkey business that would leave us stripped of our defense mechanisms and standing stark naked before the silent, staring void.
0: Certainly, our authors find support throughout history for these perspectives, even if more optimistic modes are thicker on the ground. For example, Ligotti quotes letters from Joseph Conrad, most famous as the author of Heart of Darkness, the inspiration for the film Apocalypse Now, and one of the most legendary depictions of human savagery in the absence of the artificial strictures of civilization.
4: In an 1898 letter, Conrad wrote, If only we could get rid of our consciousness. What makes mankind tragic is not that they are victims of nature, it is that they are conscious of it. To be part of the animal kingdom under the conditions of this earth is very well, but as soon as you know of your slavery, the pain, the anger, the strife the tragedy begins. We can't return to nature since we can't change our place in it. Our refuge is in stupidity. There is no morality, no knowledge, and no hope. There is only the consciousness of ourselves which drives us about a world that is always but a vain and floating appearance.
0: These guys seem like a blast at parties, but it's worth a moment for us to truly consider their perspective and the idea that the world is fundamentally meaningless, that we can't escape our desires, that potentially, as Legati constantly insists, there is only one truly sensible solution for all humans to voluntarily decide to stop reproducing and thus solve the problem of conscious suffering gradually and naturally. Of course, this will never happen, partially, as he points out, because as our civilization manages to assuage more and more of the plagues that caused pain and disease in the past, it becomes ever easier to insist that this is truly the best time in history to have children. If you're hoping to give birth to beings who will not pass their lifetimes in pain and misery, or, as Ligotti puts it in a more pithy and amusingly pessimistic tone,
4: To the regret of pessimists, our primitive ancestors could not see that theirs was not a time in which to produce children.
0: So what to make of this argument? Well, let's take it at face value. We're accidentally conscious beings in an indifferent cosmos. You can think this is miserable, and should be stopped as soon as possible through cessation of procreation. In other words, take the rust-coal way out. And perhaps in an earlier period of history, this might have made sense. After all, for endless generations, humans were mostly born into grinding, ignorant misery. But from our perspective, things are really looking up. Human lifespan, health, wealth, self-governance, and a bunch of other metrics are on a real positive tear. So accepting the pessimist's argument that it's all contingent, accidental, and meaningless, there's still room for a clear-eyed optimist to say that, these days, in the developed world, new lives are pretty likely to enjoy far more moments of pleasure and sublimity than ever before. Sure, by producing no more lives, you ensure no more suffering but you also ensure no more podcast listeners. And to paraphrase Winston Churchill,
4: up with that, we will not put.
0: A couple of other items before we head out. First, if you're in agreement with the philosophical pessimists, there is a small but apparently dedicated group you can join. The Voluntary Human Extinction Movement, V-H-E-M-T.
4: Or, with a little pronunciational leisure domain, vehement.
0: These folks' perspective may not be popular, but they offer a completely voluntary nonviolent option for those who feel like humanity should just call it a day. All they ask is, everyone who's a member should not reproduce. Noting that this would solve not only the problem of conscious suffering, but also of environmental degradation mentioned by Mr. Thacker earlier. Not our cup of tea, but they seem like nice folks.
4: Links to the website in the show notes, of course.
0: Second, we've come a long way in this episode, realizing more and more that things we take to be baseline, absolute, and concrete about reality are anything but. So now we think it's time to consider a truly, radically different approach to these topics. It's a view we've never really entertained before, but I think that once you really understand it, it might open your mind to a truer, raw reality, unmediated by science, rationality, or other oppressive constructs. I'll let the author state his thesis directly.
4: This is a history of the world that has been taught down the ages in certain secret societies. It may seem quite mad from today's point of view, but an extraordinarily high proportion of the men and women who made history have been believers. The aim is to show that the basic facts of history can be interpreted in a way which is almost completely the opposite of the way we normally understand them. In this single volume, I will show that this alternative, this mirror image view, is a consistent and cogent one with its own logic that has the virtue of explaining areas of human experience that remain inexplicable to the conventional view. So although this book can be read just as a record of the absurd things people have believed, an epic phantasmagoria, a cacophony of irrational experiences, I hope that by the end some readers will hear some harmonies and perhaps also sense a slight philosophical undertow, which is a suggestion that it may be true.
0: Look, everyone, I know we've been hard-bitten skeptics up to this point in our series, but we've seen how squirrely and elusive the idea of shared reality is. Maybe it's time to start believing the guy who's going to re-explain the history of the world based on the esoteric magic and drugs ideas promulgated and nurtured through the centuries by secret societies. I mean, science and philosophy had their chance. It's time to give a real fair hearing to the magicians, the self-proclaimed sorcerers.
4: The... Nah, if we're just fucking with you. This guy is a total profile in crazy.
0: And now, ladies and gentlemen, from the four corners of our great land, we present this episode of Profiles in Crazy. You got us. We're good sports about acknowledging how little we know about baseline reality, but there's no fucking way we're going to just seed the ground to this kind of mystic woo-woo bullshit just-so story. Before we get to the disemboweling, who the fuck is this guy, and what's his deal? The book in question is modestly titled The Secret History of the World, and was sprung upon an unsuspecting world by one Jonathan Black back in 2013. Except it turns out that Jonathan Black is actually just a pen name for Mark Booth, a publisher and former Oxford lecturer, who appears to be vying for the official Paranoid Strain Most Credulous Person in the World Award.
4: Technically, the field is wide open since the death of our hero, Art Bell.
0: Lest you doubt us.
4: And really, after all this time, are you seriously not willing to give us a benefit of the doubt when it comes to identifying the purest forms of crazy?
0: The publisher put out a sort of trailer for the book, narrated by Booth himself. Think maybe we tracked this thing down
26: and inserted it here for your delectation? You bet your sweet ass we did. And mystics say that the cosmos began when the great cosmic mind began to reflect on himself. He had it in mind to create a race of beings rather like himself. If you had been there, you might have been able to see wave after wave of thoughts emanating from the mind of God. And in the same way that over vast Unimaginable stretches of time, wave after wave, dashing on the seashore, smooth pebbles. So, wave after wave coming out of the mind of God fashioned the first matter. And if you were able to look more closely, you might see that these waves emanating from the mind of God were actually made up of millions of angels. Angels are the thoughts of the great cosmic mind. One of the great ways was made up of a glittering order of angels that the Bible calls the powers that be. These powers work together to create the race of beings that God has in mind. This race of beings would be able to enjoy free will and could think freely and choose who they wanted to love. The powers that be arrange themselves around the earth and were known to the ancient peoples as the gods of the solar system. The pattern that the powers that be made in the sky would help shape humanity and give humanity faculties that are unique in the cosmos. Because the moon reflects the light of the sun, for example, we too have the power to reflect, to think. So it was that matter was precipitated from the great cosmic mind, But it didn't happen all at once, and for a long time, forms were more fluid and morphed, and there were giants and dwarves and monsters, and men walked with gods and angels and spirits. These are the times remembered in the early passages in the Bible and in the sacred myths of all religions.
0: Booth's story is that he was kind of interested in esoteric views of history and reality, and then one day, the strangest thing happened.
8: And uh, then one day this guy came to see me who was, I could tell he was a bit, he was different. There was something odd about him. I drifted into publishing and he said to me, "Um, will you publish some old alchemical texts and I'll write some new introductions. We went out to lunch and it was the first of several lunches. And I discovered that he had this amazing knowledge and I'd learned that he was an initiate of several secret societies and I found I could ask him almost anything and um, and he would tell me after a while he said to me uh, I, I think you're ready now and I said ready for what and he said initiation and I thought about it long and hard and decided not to go with it. And that was partly because I knew by then that initiation could be very dangerous, that it does can take you quite near death, uh, but then also I realized that I would have to take a vow of secrecy and I would never be able to write about all these wonderful things that I've learned. So.
4: As a quick recap, Mr. Booth decided not to join a secret society, though his mysterious patron offered the opportunity, because he was afraid of the near death aspects of the preferred initiation ritual, and because he was afraid that, once sworn to secrecy, he would not be able to share the esoteric wisdom he had accumulated with us, the science believing Hoi Poloi. Well, thank goodness he made the right choice.
0: Uh, yeah. Thank goodness. Anyway, as Booth's purpose is to recast all of history as some sort of war of the gods, except it totally happened in real life, yo, he has a lot of displeasure to express about the primacy of science and rationality in the modern world.
4: Science has taken over from religion as a main agent of social control. It is science that decides what is acceptable for us to believe and what is beyond the pale. In both the ancient world and the Christian era, the secret philosophy was kept secret by threatening those who trafficked in it with death. Now in the post-Christian era, the secret philosophy is still surrounded by dread, but the threat is of social death rather than execution. Belief in key tenets, such as prompting by disembodied beings or that the course of history is materially influenced by secret cabals, has been branded as at best crackpot, at worst the very definition of what it is to be mad.
0: See, this is exactly the sort of thing I worried about when I decided to lay bare the sheer weirdness that confronts us as modern seekers after reality in this here episode. Given how fucked up everything we heard from the sane scientists and philosophers can be, I worry that you're somehow attuned now to believing this dude's evidence-free horseshit. But I hope you see there's a huge difference between bravely saying, I don't know, when confronted with the current limits of human knowledge, as both philosophers and scientists tend to do, and instead barreling through, insisting that you, in fact, do know. Because a bunch of texts written thousands of years ago, without any physical evidence to their veracity, are nonetheless totally true because parts of them are in sync with other ancient allegorical texts from other societies and traditions. Or at least, in your opinion, they are.
4: That's just math, people.
0: Okay, enough with the preliminaries. Let's give you a few samples of pure, uncut Mark Booth crazy. These are going to be presented as individual, unconnected diamonds. I could provide more context, but it honestly wouldn't help.
4: In the secret history, the evolution of the species were not the even progress that science supposes. There were dead ends, false starts, and even deliberate attempts at sabotage. Snakes, spiders, beetles, and parasitic creatures, on the other hand, were formed under the malignant influence of the dark side of the moon. According to the secret doctrine, the animals we know today evolved into the forms we are familiar with today's influenced by the stars and planets. Lions by the constellation of Leo, for instance. Bulls by the constellations of Taurus. Centaurs, mermaids, sirens, fauns, and satyrs were predecessors of anatomically modern humans, representing the impulse to create anatomically modern humans in various transitional stages.
0: Please, someone alert the major research universities' biology departments. But he has more on the subject, namely that humans at an earlier stage were plants. Now, understand, he's not saying that all life has a common ancestor, that plants and animals broadly evolved from earlier forms. No, he means, at one time, our ancestors were Swamp Thing. But he has proof. Well, not proof. More like additional nonsense.
4: Of course, no artifacts have survived from the times when gods and protohumans lived in plant form, but there is at least a reliable record of such artifacts.
0: By which, of course, he means that some people in the past reported hearing that somebody saw something that was kind of similar to something else that connects to his bullshit worldview.
4: In approximately 485 before Christ, Herodotus visited Memphis in Egypt. There, in vast underground vaults, he was shown rows of statues of former kings stretching back as far as the eye could see into almost unimaginably distant times. These beings, said the priests, were born one from the other, that is to say without the need of a sexual partner, by the plant-like method of parthenogenesis. Each carrying a plaque giving name, history and annals, the wooden monuments were a record of a long-lost era of the vegetable life of humankind.
0: Well, Herodotus was an important ancient historian. I'm assuming everything he wrote meets modern standards of skeptical rigor, evidence and observation. Oh, what's that? How did he describe a hippopotamus when he saw one?
4: This animal has four legs, cloven hoofs like an ox, a snub nose, a horse's mane and tail, conspicuous tusks, a voice like a horse's neigh, and is about the size of a very large ox.
21: See?
0: Unimpeachable accuracy. Also, there are ants in India the size of foxes, apparently. Anyway, modern scholars see Herodotus as an important historian, but don't just uncritically accept all the crazy, crazy bullshit he says. A few more quotes, without much commentary, to give you some more of this book's delicious, insane flavor.
4: Tradition tells us that as Lucifer fell, a great emerald dropped from his forehead. This signals that humanity would increasingly suffer a loss of vision in the third eye, the brow chakra. Obviously. But what of the story of the fish gods? How does that fit in? Could it be that the ancient myths anticipated the modern scientific insight that the animal life that would eventually evolve into the human being form began life as a fish? If this were true, it would be an astonishing revelation.
7: Uh Uh-huh.
0: Also, Booth just loves to point out that important scientific figures throughout history, like Newton and Francis Bacon, believed all kinds of esoteric nonsense. It's true. Newton famously thought his study of the dimensions of Solomon's temple in the Bible was more important than his work in physics. We respectfully disagree. On Bacon, Booth notes,
4: It is undoubtedly true that Bacon had powers beyond the ability of science to explain today. He sent his complete works to Pope Clement IV in the mind of a 12-year-old boy called John, whom he had taught to know all his many books off by heart in a few days. Bacon used a method that involved prayers and magic symbols. Similarly, he was able to teach students Hebrew so well that they could read all of Scripture in a matter of weeks.
0: Well, sure, if it says that he did that somewhere, then obviously he did, right? I mean, why would we doubt it? The total lack of evidence? I mean, is there any good reason? Anything? Let's end this with a personal favorite.
4: Anyone who has spent time with mediums or psychics accept that they often, even routinely, receive information by supernatural means. Anyone, that is, whose cast of mind is not such that they are absolutely determined to disbelieve.
0: Now is a good time to remind everyone that for 50 fucking years, a skeptical organization called the James Randi Educational Foundation offered a million dollars to anyone who could demonstrate any sort of paranormal phenomenon under mutually agreed-upon, scientifically-controlled conditions. In spite of over a thousand attempts, not one person was able to claim the prize. But anyway, Booth's right. Psychics are totes legit, y'all. We've hardly begun plumbing the rich veins of nonsense in this book, which will come up again when we eventually get to secret societies like Rosicrucians, Freemasons, and of course, the most gangsta of all the Illuminati. for now, we need to wrap this monster episode up. So in the end, what have we learned? That neither philosophy, Eastern nor Western, nor science has managed to fully, completely plumb the depths of our shared reality well enough that we can truly declare that we know what is in fact real. Nor do we understand what we mean when we say we can know something, given how elusive the concept of selfhood is. And yet, your host remains just as committed as ever to skepticism, falsifiability, and logical investigation, as the best way for us to get ever closer to pinning down these elusive concepts. So why say it's better to accept scientific realism than other ideas? Mainly because scientific realism seems, at least to us, to be the approach to epistemology that requires the fewest a priori commitments. The funny thing is, worldviews like Booth's, they always ask you to accept everything you currently accept as a basis for reality. The humdrum commonplace concepts that anchor daily experience, like the idea in our everyday experience, we are all living in essentially the same space and time together, that everything is subject to causation.
4: Apologies, Mr. Hume.
0: And the rules of basic logic, that reality can be investigated and that discoveries about it will be reproducible, etc. But then people like Booth pile a bunch of additional crap on top of those baseline assumptions. And in our estimation, they have really crappy reasons for doing so.
4: Again, scientific realism accepts the minimum number of assumptions you have to make such that our experience of reality comports as closely as possible to what we can measure and replicate about that reality, wiggly as it may still be.
0: Folks like Booth always want to add assumptions, that the ancient mystical descriptions of our origins are just as valid a way to read those origins as modern replicable science, that some, but only some, Ancient stories are so important that they should be taken as truth, regardless of the total lack of positive
4: and overwhelming presence of contradictory
0: evidence that their approach is just as likely to yield accurate information about the past, the universe, reality, and the self, as does science, and legitimate history. Booth clearly hates the ascendancy of science. As he notes,
4: It is only in this obscure suburb of history, where nothing miraculous ever seems to happen, and no great geniuses live. This age, when the standards of education of the educated masses is in steep decline. It is only in this time and place that people have held matter before mind believes. In all other places, at all other times, people believe the contrary. They would have found it just about impossible to imagine how anyone could believe what we do.
0: Imagine how crabbed and cramped your view of the miraculous modern world would have to be to think this way. No geniuses? We don't even need to point to the recently deceased Stephen Hawking, nor any of the other standouts whose remarkable achievements constantly enrich our world. The point is geniuses are here in profusion. We're minting them faster than ever before, and they're working together more collaboratively than ever before to plumb the depths of reality. No Einstein could have built the Large Hadron Collider, but 6,000 geniuses all working together could. Education standards are falling. You can literally prove that people are smarter now than ever before in human history. It's called the Flynn Effect. The internet has arguably and permanently enhanced the creativity and available intelligence for every human on Earth, and its scope is increasing and expanding at an ever faster pace. What the fuck are you talking about, dude? And for all of the kvetching and hand wringing and posturing, in the end, all these assholes ever prove is that, however erudite, carefully researched, and ably written your ideas are, that doesn't mean your book's not part of The Paranoid Strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com and visit on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. We'd love to see you join our fun, friendly Facebook group. Just drop us a request, and we'll usher you through The Velvet Rope. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra, and indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Our latest soundtrack was mixed by South Fork Haas, Big Mucho put together our super-duper website and helps in many ways big and small, and Willem UFO makes every goddamned one of the pretty pictures. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next time we talk about Philip K. Dick, Ancient Christian Heresy and the Science of Consciousness. Somehow, we think that we can pull all of that together. Can we? Who knows? In the meantime, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically.